From beyond the farthest reaches of our galaxy they come. Two brains pulsing with a strange energy. These space brains come to share their love of science fiction movies. Welcome to Space Brains, the show where we joy watch sci-fi movies and then talk about what was good and what was great. I'm Surrey and this is Mark. Hiya, it's episode 85, which means it's a classic time and the sci-fi film we're looking at is Minority Report. Came out in 2002. In this episode, we'll reveal what we thought about the film, the ins and outs of narrative and film language, plus a nice deep dive into Tom Cruise waving his hands in front of a screen or maybe some other science that the filmmakers are proposing. Minority Report teams up Spielberg and Tom Cruise. It's the first Spielberg sci-fi we're looking at, Surrey on Space Brains, even though he's made quite a few. So far. So far that we've, yeah as of 85 episodes, and it's definitely a classic. The screenplay was by Scott Frank and John Cohen, based on the short story, The Minority Report, by Philip K. Dick. So this is your spoiler warning. Warning. <coughs> Turn back now and warning. watch the film and, and then, like, tune back in and hear all sorts of nonsense. Otherwise, the precogs will know that you have not watched the film. In fact, we already know you haven't watched the film. Yes, And now you have. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for watching and tuning back in. Minority Report is obviously one of these science fiction films set in the future, and you know that because you've just watched it, where a special police unit is able to arrest murderers before they commit their crimes. An officer from that unit is himself accused of a future murder. Dum-dum. Dum-dum-dum. What is going to happen? But first of all, what was your number one takeaway from Minority Report, sorry? My number one takeaway from Minority Report is that in the future, we will all become musical conductors, orchestral conductors, Mm. in order to interact with our computers. Yeah, I can't wait. I can't wait. (laughs) I forgot how this scene played out Mm. where Tom Cruise first, uh, it gets a little red wooden ball that drops down yeah. through a little spirally thing. A pool. But he has the yeah, the orchestra music on and he's most distinctly, you know, conducting the orchestra whilst bringing up all the different information and mm. scrolling through information. Oh, no, it's awesome. And it was a nice he's sort of gloves. Almost, he's got yeah, some sort he's of weird gloves. Gloves. It's almost like a dance. <laughs> it is. Like, it, it was is. Um, a very nice sort of mixing there of the, the technology and the music and the physical movements to tell us a story and show us the story, which is, I, I think it was really good sort of storytelling technique in that, you know, if you're looking at a detective film, mm. it's the police briefing. Yeah. Uh, except it was done with music and with movements mm. and with images flashing about the place and not a lot of just description of everything. 
I think for anyone that's uh, maybe uh, was born after the year 2002 um, and you're watching a film like this now, even though you would you'd be 20, maybe not, maybe, maybe if you're about 15, 16 and you are also listening to us right now, you might watch this and think, eh, he's just doing the scroll and the swipe and the zoom in and the zoom out. We can do that on, a, on an Apple phone or something. But... Yeah, when this came out, this was a revolutionary way of looking this at computers. This was pretty four, cool. About three or four years before, yeah, any phones of, did do this. Yeah, phones didn't do this, I know. So it, yeah. I think, yeah, I just reckon that when I watched this just now, I was like, oh, 2002. I was like, oh, yeah, okay. They've taken it to a new like dimension, you know, haven't they? Like it's a different way of... Yeah, scrolling through information, and it was done as such a dance as you. Were and I, I suspect the Apple ads somewhat borrowed from this concept because if you look at some of the Apple ads going back, they had uh, a lot of the time they would have some sort of funky music, and then yeah, remember like the silhouette dancing mm, yeah. to the music, but with an iPod or yeah. whatever it was they were advertising. And this scene in Minority Report uh, being being that. Yeah, it's you would interact with computers in a, a sort of an organic fashion, yeah. you know, like yeah. a, a natural fashion. It was natural to have that music playing with him moving. Mm-hmm. Like the actual movements he's doing. There's a video clip by uh, who, who is it? Is it? Oh gosh, I I want to say guy from Talking. No, was it Talking Heads or is it? Oh, I can't remember. So in the video clip, the singer mm. is doing these same sort of movements. Like he's sort of. Um, these strange sort of hand and arm motions sort of dancing to the music he's singing with images going behind him. Yeah, right. And in an interview he he revealed that he can't dance yeah. but he was told that he was going to dance this video clip. He was like, mm. well, I, I can't do that. But he said he was, he was entranced by these um, African tribeswomen who were singing and telling a story, you know, like they do one of these oral yeah, yeah. Uh, history t- type of things. Right. And there were set hand movements and arm movements that go with the story, you know, like yeah. like Incy Wincy Spider or, you know, yeah, yeah. whatever. But Choreographed. And, and so he was, he was doing movements inspired by that, these mm. sort of storytelling through arm motions. And this all comes back to Minari Report because that's exactly what I was reminded of when he was, <laughs> or, you know, um, conducting this orchestra. But yeah. these hand movements, you know, he puts one down and then he moves forward. He... I guess another way to look at it, but is it's almost a bit like a hand surgeon or, or a surgery, isn't it? Like mm. he, he, it's very precise. Um, the other people, his assistants, the other police officers, are they're all kind of there to help do that specific job. So it feels like it's a masterpiece and maybe something that, Tom Cruise is the character doing it. Sorry, Tom Cruise is the actor playing John Anderton in this, I'm pretty sure. He acts like a surgeon in that scene. He's a real expert in it. So what about is this hope, warning, or an experiment? Warning. 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 <laughs> this is a complete warning, I reckon, because it's a... It's. I mean, really the essence of this story is saying, can you really predetermine someone's intentions? And, I mean, it's based on an old book by Philip K. Dick, a short story, mm. um, The Minority Report, and it reminds me, you know, this this type of story, I think why I love this type of story is it It reminds me a bit of like Fahrenheit, th- uh, Fahrenheit 351, is it? Four. Four, 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 five, one. That's it. Sorry, and nineteen eighty four. Those kind of sci fi films where we're taken into a bit of an abstract future that 
we we take something like this, you know, the idea that oh, you could stop murder. It's it's a debate, isn't it? It's like you could stop murder if you could determine who's going to murder who. So Mark's going to murder Surrey because Surrey's annoying him. Can't remember the goddamn right? but video in, but clip. To, but we could prevent that because we can kind of tap into Mark's brain and find out. Oh, he's about to. He's thinking about murdering Surrey. So the question then is, of course, but. But he hasn't actually murdered Surrey, so has he done anything wrong? And it's the same in this. This the present. The premise of Minority Report is really that question: like, is someone guilty before they've even mm. committed the crime? At, at what point is it just thought crime? Yeah, and Which and is... you know we all think thoughts and different things. And I mean, in fact, there's that great scene in this film where they go to kind of like a fantasy world tech. Yeah. kind of nightclub place or whatever. And, you know, one guy is having sex, you know, with a whole bunch of people around him. One other guy is getting a promotion. And it's all just, you know, um, basically playing with people's brains. It's not really happening. And uh, and and that's the thing. And and the the customer at the time is asking the boss, I, I want to kill my boss. Mm. That's what I want to actually do. So, yeah, we all have... Sometimes we have those thoughts. And so that this type of sci-fi is a bit more of that older traditional sci-fi storytelling where it's, okay, like a question about human morality and how would that be if it actually played out, you know? Like 1984, without spoiling, you know, it's all about, you know, Big Brother and that idea of like Big Brother controlling people and and, and people's brains and all that sort of stuff. We aren't mm. going to 84 tonight. But, yeah, the idea is the same in Minority Report. And I love that. I loved that, that you know, you'd really taken it to another essence, aren't you? Yeah, what I liked about this is where we get that sort of high point where we're told, and we did warn you about spoilers, but we're told that John is going to... Well, now he's going to murder someone. <laughs> yeah, he's going to, he's a murderer and yeah. it's a premeditated murder. Yeah, that's right. And, of course, this character's sitting there going, Leo, I don't, I don't even know a Leo. I've got no... What the hell? How can mm. I possibly do this? Yeah. And you sort of think, well, the easy thing is, and I think someone even says it in there, is just don't go anywhere near anyone called Leo. Yeah. Like it's going to happen in 35 hours. Like yeah. just go away for the weekend or just stay in the office for two, 48 hours or whatever. Yeah. Like, And if you find someone called Leo, just plan not to kill them. <laughs> Except as we find out, when you get to the final point, he does kill Leo mm-hmm. or Leo dies, depending on how you want to phrase it. Yeah. But it becomes sort of almost a um, a driving point of the story. Yeah. Well, the question then is, is would he have killed Leo if he hadn't known yes. about the predetermination, right? Like, yeah. that's the thing. Like, it's a, as humans, this is, this is what this film's about. Like, it's like your predetermined will versus has your destiny already been chosen for you or do we have free will? It's that old chestnut, really, isn't mm. it? Like, are we de- destined to live a certain way in our life or are we going to change it? And then like a good time travel film in a way, if you're told your future, do you still end up in your future? Yeah. Like if someone would say to you, oh, at the end of the week, you're going to die. Like what would you, and, and that was determined, it'd be like, oh, well, what could I do to stop that? You know, or, in this or context, does everything I do actually cause it to happen? Yeah, or does it, yeah, am I just actually making it happen by now I know the fact that I'm going to die at the end of the week? Because that's what sort of happens here is... Yeah. He learns that he comes up as the killer. Yep. Had he just gone, oh, okay, and been arrested <laughs> and put the little halo on and dropped the thing, he never would have gone anywhere near it. Like, it Leo have... would have been still alive. Yeah, yeah, but not only that, but he wouldn't have even found out who Leo was. And no. It's supposed to be premeditated murder, so he would never have even premeditated it. Yes. Which 
yeah, it it's, it raises that morality there, the, the moral decision of do we wait until the very last second where we know he has made the decision to kill Leo, or do we just stop it now? But the thing is, if you stop it now, it's like he doesn't even know who he is. He's not even in the situation. He's not a killer. Mm. So what are you stopping? And Agatha, one of the precogs, you know, like when he kidnaps her, that's what she kind of keeps saying. You can, she keeps questioning that. Like, you can change this. Yeah, you, you can, can choose. You can choose not to go there. Just don't go to the apartment, you know, like, yeah. don't, you know, and he's like, but I've got to find out. <laughs> Bloody John, Tom Cruise, leave it, leave it all well, alone. I, I've got to say, I'd be pretty curious too, though. It's yeah. like going, Cause did, I cannot imagine a situation where I would be willing to murder someone. Yeah. And I can't, I can't imagine what environment that would be. Um, so I'm kind of curious to know this. Who is this, this person? This person must somehow inspire me to kill them. Like, but, but what, what about, is it? What could possibly inspire me to do that? But why not try to meet them after the murder time? <laughs> you know, like oh, just a few days later. Like, just try a different time. Don't you know, maybe be fine. So, was this the first time you'd seen Minority Report? No, this is the second time. The first time I saw it, I think, was in the cinema. Right, cinema one. Yes. Ooh. Well, so this is. This is back when I was in Melbourne. Melbourne. Yes, I would have seen it. Oh, jeez, was I in Melbourne? I was in Melbourne. 2002. Yeah, I would have Roughly. seen this in the, in the cinema mm. uh, with my friend, not my wife. I had no wife at that point. <laughs> I, I didn't even have a girlfriend. Oh, Surrey's revealing some timeline points yes. in his life. You could pit, You could listen to all 85 episodes and you could go start back to, to two, If you had a time machine, you could go back to 2002 before I even met my wife. Oh. Oh, and right. yeah, you disrupt could disrupt the time. Continuum. You could watch Minority Report with me <laughs> and my friend. <laughs> you could. And what was that first impression? You think? Do you remember what you felt about this film? I mean, I think I thought I thought it was a real sort of. Um, you know, I knew it was a Spielberg film, so I was yep. expecting it to be of good quality. Like yep. he he does reliable films. I mm. think he's a reliable filmmaker. Uh, I watched it. I wasn't disappointed. There was very interesting. Concepts and ideas. This is definitely a film that I remember. There's films like my my son was asking me, "Oh, what was that thing called in Hellboy?" That at the end part when they're doing this, I'm like, "Hellboy, mm. I don't know." We watched it last week, and he's like, "Yeah, I know." There was uh, he fought a giant, but I only remember it from the trailer. <laughs> so I watched this whole film, and I'm like struggling. And there's, and there's films like that where I'm just going, "I I really don't remember." You know, couldn't can't recall what it is that happens, mm. but not this one. This one I definitely remember the whole lot, yeah, yeah. which I think points to the classicalness of it. Yes. The fact that we're going to call it, a, it's it's not too um, old a film, but I think it it has a lot in there that you, I remembered it. Well, you can quite have an clearly. instant classic anyway on that. Yeah, I, 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 I quite clearly remembered it. Uh, it stood out the cars where he was in his self driving car thing on the way they sort of. Organize themselves and shuffled and transferred about mm. place. That's that's like a dream for me, and I reckon that's <laughs> that's what we need to get to with our self-driving cars. It's just these spend the time and energy on that. Ah, oh, this orchestration of vehicles. Uh, all these people with this uh, romanticizing. Oh, but I like to feel the driving. Ah, oh, that's because you're an old man already. You know, like <laughs> yeah. There's people who like riding horses too, but yeah. you, you don't see them riding on the freeway. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, so you go you drive your car on a um you know dirt track or a 
sports track or something. But, you know, when you're actually just trying to get from point A to point B, just let the computers do it. Yeah. Much better. Maybe there'll be like a theme park one day where you can like literally be in peak hour traffic on a freeway, like just a make-believe freeway and people can cut you off just to give you that feeling of being still being behind the vehicle. Yeah. You just drive around in a circle really slowly. Yes, really slowly. <laughs> and people and deliberately people cut you off and... But then that way you could feel the traffic. It's like the opposite of NASCAR. Yeah, it's yeah, like... yeah. <laughs> opposite. Yeah, so tell me though, there was a lot of science fiction in this. Any science bits that you particularly liked? Ooh. Uh, well, beside the orchestra or the, yeah, the conductor experience that we see with Tom Cruise dealing with his computer, um, are the eyeballs. Definitely the eyeballs, the eyeballs. Yes. yeah. So... Their eyeballs are, and in a lot of futuristic films, that the eyeball is the identity. You know, I mm. suppose isn't it? And I mean, iPhones do the face ID thing at the moment. Um, and so to get into places, your retina scanned. He's scanned by the police on the the metro. Um, you know, every, everywhere it's kind of a really easy way to track people. And so, all the yeah, ads. And all the ads like read who your eyeball and then that knows you. So of course, when John is on the run, he gets his eyeballs cut out by this dodgy surgeon, which I loved. That that's a really good scene. We have to. We'll come back to that. This later. dodgy surgeon. Yeah, <laughs> you don't remember me. Um, but yeah, I, 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 you know, the, the ability just to remove someone's eyeballs and put in new eyeballs and whatever it was was that twelve hours of not taking your eye. You, you know, the eye if you see the light, you will be blinded. <laughs> he did see the light. You wait but he for didn't twelve be, hours. Yeah, we were told that so many times just to ramp up. Then the spiders. The spiders were also a pretty cool. Um, the spider bots. Yeah, you know, they just, were a really cool sci-fi element. Just charging through, just. You know, annoying the crap out of people. Personally, the hot, the con, the concept of this film questions the pre-crime. That is something that really irks my. Like, I, I would not like to be in this society. No, no, you know what I mean. Like, no, because it's just personally, like, I'm a big person. I'm a big believer in like justice, and I, don't, I think sometimes the justice system already gets it wrong, and you know, yeah, and you got to make sure that people are guilty. No matter what, so like I'm a big, I'm yeah. a big believer in that, right? And so, pre-crime is just ridiculous to me. Like I, I would hate to be in a society that lives in. Well, a see, what I thought would be better is they, the opening of the film, they have a very dramatic last moment, last second, grab his hand as he's stabbing down with the scissors. Yeah, yeah. Right. So you could sort of go, well, the best you could really get him for there is maybe intent to kill. Yeah, yeah. Or just assault with a deadly weapon. Yeah. Um, no, there's no grievous bodily harm because he's not actually hit anyone yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But rather than locking him up, because this is just, it was a crime of passion, we could yeah. see that, uh, wouldn't we just like give him counselling? Mm. Like that sounds like to me, it's like court-mandated counselling. Okay, phew, you had a bit of an episode there. Let's get this sorted out. You and your yeah. wife are having troubles. Yeah. We don't want that to progress to you murdering someone. Yeah, because is, is that guy at the start going to actually murder anyone else? Yeah, he's not really what you'd call a particular danger to, to society. He no, was just... A danger to his wife. <laughs> he, he got Yeah, he got built up to a certain... As I said, the premeditated murder comes... Uh, through a lot faster, yeah. a lot earlier, I should say. Whereas crimes of passion, it's only at the last moment they yeah. actually get warnings about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it goes to show this guy has never planned to kill anyone. Yeah. He has no intention to I, I guess the concept, but and we are sort of explaining this, however, is that because of the success of the program, people realising it, then people are actually 
questioning like my thoughts like you don't even no. want to thought think it right because then you'll be accused of it well so, that's that 1984 business yeah areas. and that starts to get to again that that thing that you don't you're removing people's just free thought because you know they said like i just joked about the fr- f- the freeway peak hour you might go oh that guy cut me off oh he's a dickhead i'm gonna ram him up you know like like you don't actually do it or most people don't but you have you might have that thought well in this world of minority report you'd be arrested yeah you'd wonder you'd will that Trigger. Yeah, I mean, you'd have to like really strengthen that. They're trying to say that no, no, it wouldn't. You know, just as sort of idle thoughts wouldn't trigger. It's no. only if you are determined to do it. Like if it's actually been predetermined that you're going to do it. Yeah. But then you'd always ask, well, why do you say predetermined? Like, hey, yeah. you know, I don't just change your mind last yeah, second. You could change your mind last because that's what humans. That guy do. stabbing down with the scissors could have sort of stabbed down and partway through just you know, like. Let his arm go limp and just go. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, who knows? And in fact, the film does prove it, doesn't it? Because. John doesn't kill Leo. No. And also at the end, Burgess or Lamar, he also kills himself. Yes. So it shows that humans do change the storyline anyway, which puts fault at a system like this. You know? yes. But it's that scary future, and that's why it's definitely a warning in this film, it's that scary future of like, Oh, yeah, what if we came up with a great idea of arresting people just on the thought of crime, you know? And then that way that would stop crime, you know? So, anyway, uh, did you have a favourite scene? Favourite scene, I did love... When I first watched this, my favourite scene was the bathtub spiders. Yeah. Like, that was so tense and you just know that he's only at six hours and it was really told quite carefully to only... And do they it give him a little hours. zap, don't they? In the oh, they're, they're zapping him. And it's <laughs> they are really ruthless little spiders, but it, those things. Yeah, Spielberg's really good at this because, yeah, first of all, they go into the building so you know it's going to happen and he's running back going, well, he's running around, he's blind, he's trying to figure out a way out. And then he gets into the ice bath and yeah. he says, oh, it just disappeared. And you think, oh, that's it. He's, he's done it. He just yeah. has to hold that. But then in, they're like, There's okay, well, bubble. that's that wrong. But, well, also go check out the apartment Yeah, because – you know, did they just jump out the window? Was it a yeah. mis misreading uh, mm. or what? And I, it, it, Spielberg builds the tension in that scene. Yeah, so and then well. the spiders come through, and you're still hoping, and then they zap, and they're crawling over him, and they're like zapping into his eye. Is that going to blind him? Is he mm. screwed now? Yeah, uh, yeah, that was a really great scene. It was. It was an awesome scene. And this time, this time when I watched it, I really liked the automated car escape. So he was in his automated car. I don't know why he jumped in an auto car thing when he's wanted because immediately he's just going to be recalled back which it does yeah but he kicks his way out and jumps off and he like plays like frogger or something jumping from <laughs> car to car and yeah. through the balcony and into the uh, apartment where they're doing yoga <laughs> and so there's like these people bent over double and they yeah. don't unbend to no. us. they sort of waddle up to them while they're still double yeah. i know i i don't remember the, the comedy there's a there's yeah. a number of comedy scenes in this film there is yeah which uh, again i think is one of these great ways of of showing, okay, this is a serious scene. Mm. So the eyeball thing, oh, no comedy. Nothing yeah. in that is funny. There's actually no. like a, a mother getting destroyed because her children are being, you know, scanned. Yeah. And there's, you know, a, a couple having a fight and they get stopped in the middle. Mm. It's quite a tense, very serious scene. Mm. But his escape there is a bit of fun. Like yeah. we're talking about the, you know, act two fun and games. It totally and he jumps through it. and there's like this yoga class and because he lands all sort of, Contorted up similar to the yeah. way the yoga people are, and that in itself is a bit of a joke. And it then, is. and then they waddle over. Are you okay? Are you okay? And they're all sort of bent in half, and mm. it's which is, are you okay? And they're like looking like tremendously contorted creatures. Yeah. You know? 
And even when he, and the other funny bit is he, when he breaks back into the station with his eyeballs in the mm. bag and yeah. the plastic bag and he drops them. And he drops them. Like, and they go rolling down. He chases like, after like, them. And... I, I was actually, when I watched that this time, I was, I was a bit like, it was, because it's quite tense. Like he's going to break back into the police station mm. and he uses the eyeball and it works. And then he drops it, he, like he fumbles it and drops it. And you're like, ah, he's, and he like chases it. It's quite. Comedic, like it yeah, really I, is. So. I, I, I didn't notice it the first time I watched it. Yeah, like, and yeah. I think this is this is uh, a sign of something that was good because when I was first watching it, I was, I was really drawn to the story. It, yeah. But it obviously had an effect on me throughout yeah. because it it plays you in that up and down way. You know, yeah. you, you go, the tension's up, you've got this spider scene. Uh, and But just before that, when he's reached in the fridge... And he he goes past. He, he, he actual, goes, oh, there's the milk. And then he passes by the the nice sandwich and grabs the rotten one. And goes, mm. and then in panic he pushes aside the good milk and grabs the rotten milk. And <laughs> and then he's drinking the ice water, which is, was actually the yeah. you know ice for his eyeballs. And yeah, it's just it's 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 a bit comedic, you know. And the um mm. the nurse she was a bit funny with her um. I, I, I shouldn't say it was really funny because she's sexually abusing this fellow, but still. It, it was still. It was a bit. Funny. It was done clown-like yeah, in a clownish done. fashion, and uh, yeah, I, I thought it was it was very good. But then they had this tense scene, so it was up and down. So that's my two favorite. My my favorite scene when I first watched it was the spiders in the bathtub, mm, yeah. and this time it was the escaping in the automatic cars. I just loved the way it it was presented, mm, um, yeah, yeah. and you don't. I can't think of any. Maybe in the new. Um, Total Recall, there's kind of a similar sort of thing where they right. jump across robotic things. But yeah. anyway, it's quite a, a unique scene, I think. Yeah, 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 it's awesome. It's very world-building, that scene as well. Yes, yes. It, it shows you the society that we're in a bit more, so that's really great. All these people in their own little pods getting about the place. <laughs> um, have you been up to anything creative or science fiction-wise yourself? Uh, yeah, I'm still uh, going through my novel again. I'm working out... Uh, a better pacing of plot points. Mm-hmm. Yeah, taking my own advice here with these these three act structure, mm-hmm. seeing how that applies to this novel. Uh, and Great idea. Also, because it, it doesn't quite doesn't quite work the same with novels. The pacing is sort of slightly different between a novel and a, and a movie. But a lot of things that I've learnt from you know years of studying science fiction films, for example, uh, has led to a certain understanding of of the uh, the art of show and not tell, which right, is yeah. always spoken about in in writing, mm. and it's important there that it's a matter of going okay here's the, here's my mood point, I need my fun and game, so I need at least one sort of scene that you're expecting to have happen, you know, like you want to have happen, but then I need to introduce well this main character, uh, she has a trait where she's um, she drinks too much, like. Mm-hmm. To, to to escape, like she has a bit of a problem. So I'm going to have a scene where that's sort of played up and when we discover that she's aware of it and she's not happy with it, so this is something that she's going to have to change. So there's like this scene which doesn't move the plot, like it doesn't move the story, but it, it builds the character in the world. Mm. And then I need uh, another scene where there's this character, he's, um, uh, he's very uh, persistent but open-minded. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to have a little scene where he's doing... Something to show that, and yeah, so I'm still putting that together. Maybe uh, you need some eyeballs rolling down. I need some eyeballs rolling <laughs> down some hills. And then the other thing, of course, is my son has said he wants to learn how to write computer programs, computer games. Yeah. 
which is, you know, warm the cockles of my heart. Uh, we'll see how serious he is about that. But that made me dust off the computer game that I mostly wrote not long ago and I'm back into that one. So that's that's pretty mm. good. Yeah, awesome. So, oh, the, the other thing is we've got our year 2023 film festival has just opened for right, entries. Yeah, we've got our you. first entry. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure you'll hear more about that as we go along. Yes. Um, it's got similar categories. There is a new category this year, which is music videos. Because yeah, we actually right. got four, was it four or five music videos? I think it was four, yeah. Yeah, in, in the last one. And they were, they were really cool, but we didn't really have a category for them to no. compete in. Yeah. You know, so it was, it was kind of difficult to judge them. So this year, we're definitely putting in a music video one. Nice. So if you're a, uh, a musical act or producer... And you've got a music video that sort of is a science fiction story of some sort. Mm-hmm. Get onto it. Definitely. Go for it. Submit. Start so, getting crowding. Or this is the time now to make, you know, shoot your film. Start shooting it. Mm, definitely. You've got, you've got like you know, almost a year. Yeah. Well, it's probably going to be about nine months, isn't it? Yeah. From well, here. Hey, look, you know, if if women can have babies in nine months, you can make a music video. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Film, it's a hard <laughs> it's Always painful. <laughs> women don't know what yeah. they're... So start now. Start don't now. know what it's like. They don't know what it's like. <laughs> no, they don't. No, okay. Well, Nothing I'm, like making a film. And, and what about you, mate? Uh, I'm a bit at the clean slate page. I mean, I've got ideas and I think I might have said it last episode, but I just, um, yeah, I've got, I've got a couple of really clean ideas that are sort of ready to go so it's about what we just what i just joked about there is like literally actioning you know pre-production production and starting to make it happen um there's also i'm interested in possibly there is a particular mobile phone film festival so that might also dabble my fancy that i might plan to do later in the year but yeah it is about doing that and then on top of that I want to get cracking on a feature film that is makeable, as in a real low-budget feature film. Mm. So, again, I've got ideas for that. I haven't written the script. Uh, so far, the three feature scripts that I've written are ones where I never really worried about the budget. I was just trying to write my best, you know, the best feature script that I could write. Um, I wasn't concerned at all about actually filming them, just thinking, hey, this is such a great idea, someone might invest the money, you know. Yeah. But now I'm turning the table over in terms of, okay, well, what is something that would be like, achieve, you know, if I just want to go out and shoot this thing with my camera, what would be an idea that we could make? So, you know, earlier we, on an early episode, we looked at Cosmos and those guys in particular, you know, they, they shot most of that film in their mum's garage, you know, like 80% of that film is in a car in their mum's garage. So that was a way that they contained the cost of making that film. So it's the same here. That's what I'm trying to think about. It's like, okay, well, the old, let's just put three characters in my garage and see what yeah. happens. You know, Saw is another example of that. Oh, you know? uh, just as a reminder, you probably should let those guys out now. Yeah, oh, crap, yeah. Ooh. You shouldn't be keeping them in there for yeah, too long. especially we're recording for a few hours tonight, aren't we? Yeah. So. <laughs> they do need yeah, a okay. water change. Well, I might and... send a text to my wife just to let them out, or at least give them some water. Yeah. Um, so that's good advice. So yeah, there's a couple of big things happening. Maybe over the next few episodes, um, I can yeah reveal more of that how how it comes. Yeah, and yeah, looking looking forward to the film festival Space Brains for 2023. So yeah, keep an eye out on our socials website. We'll have more and more information. But you can go to Film Freeway to suss out what it's all about 
and get thinking. You can never start that too early. Yes, I try to... That would be my advice. I try to think (laughs) as often as I can. Yes. Yes. So just start. Just shortly after breathing and heart beating, I'm thinking, that's what I'm doing. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's get stuck into the film Minority Report. We've already revealed some of the bits and pieces and things that we like, but let's go through a bit of the narrative structure. Sorry, just mentioned the three-act structure. We're going to go over that. We'll talk as we go through it. We'll go into some things about narrative, maybe camera, lighting, sound. Uh, This was a Spielberg film, so there's actually lots we can talk about, but we'll talk about some of the key parts as we go through it. So as I said before, Steven Spielberg directed this. He's directed, I don't know, it's about four or five science fiction films now over his career um so and you know this one's probably his fourth or something if we listed them all out but uh so he's not adverse to the sci-fi genre and he's also we're doing this as a classic i think probably when you talk about et that has to be another kind of classic um and uh close encounters of a third kind you know so so they're all probably classic films really and ones that you should look at if you've if you've never seen them in the science fiction realm uh, it was based on a screenplay by Scott Frank and Joe Cohen, which was taken from a short story called The Minority Report by Philip K. Dick. Spielberg said on the record in 2002-2003, he said, I think the fans of Philip K. Dick will be happy to know that this is only based on his story, so don't go in expecting it. He knew that he would get some flack from the uh, the hardcore sci-fi you always, fans. You always do. So, you know, he just kind of basically put it out there and said, well, no, it's just based on it. It's not It's not the same story. Well, so. you couldn't win it either way. If he had uh, directed a film that was word for word, blow for blow, exactly the short story, yeah. he'd still get trouble because they go, oh, you made a whole film, you had this opportunity to show more things and you just did exactly what the story said. And you're like, yeah. okay, fine. Oh, now, this is, it's definitely a sci-fi film. We've talked about sci-fi elements, talked about, you know, the way that this film elements, the story, the hypothesis, the, the future thinking. Um, Spielberg was really big on, and many filmmakers have done this in the sci-fi, they get futurists. Imagine that is a job. Would you like to be a futurist? I would love to be a futurist. They get a futurist to really think about, you know, how technology is in the future. Spielberg said he really wanted like a realistic future, Mm. (laughs) which I love. It's always funny, isn't it? But, yeah, quite often I know iRobot, um, Alex Broyus did that. They did that for iRobot. They kind of had, you know, Audi even designed that Will Smith car. Um, And I think in this you saw the Lexus. It was Lexus, wasn't it, in this one, yeah. And um, it's Audi and iRobot. And so, like, you know, um, and Demolition Man was the other one that was Audi, I think, wasn't it? Or was that BMW maybe? But, yeah, they literally say to them, well, what is a future model, you know, and they just they drive that in the film. Um, So so it's a good way of product placement, gives a bit more funds for the films to blow around. There's that great scene in this which I was just like, oh, Spielberg's a good money-making guy where he walks through that, um, mall or train station thing or whatever it is and, you know, the, the the sci-fi element is it's detecting his eye and the ads that are then personalised to yes. John. Now, we get that with the internet now, oh, don't that we? That drives me nuts. That right? Really. Like we're getting this tailored ads, text messages stuff. So this, I looked at this now in 2022. I don't think that probably resonated as much in 2002 with me, but now in 2020, I'm like... Oh yeah, that that yeah, could that's be it. a thing. That's like, it. Yeah, we're going to be walking down the bloody train station, and they're going to be talking to us, aren't they? Oh, Jesus! Like I, 
I like. I personally think we must surely have reached peak advertising. No, like the, no, it's never going to end, man. It's, it's just going to get worse. <laughs> surely there must be some point where even the hardcore marketing people go. I think no. we've gone far enough. No, sorry, they come in for you. No, in all sorts of ways. I say that. And I, I did marketing at uni, so you know. You know, you know. I know. I know. I'd do it's it. Just, it's just, it's the same techniques. It's just the technology. If changes. I could write a brand of space brands on your eyeballs, I would. <laughs> Listen to us, you know, come into people's earbuds and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, I lo- I love that scene for two reasons. One, it was cool. Uh, tw- in 2022, it kind of makes me a bit sick because I kind of think that we probably are going to get that. Three, I know as a filmmaker, that's how he's paying for some of the special effects in this film because he's literally just got ads in the film. Yeah, because they so, were real brands. Those are real brands. It's it's great. It's great. I saw another movie with my wife the other day that did that too and in a really clever way because that's a clever way of doing it. So mm. I was like, yeah, there's, and it's the same with the Lexus cars, you know, like yeah. it's just pure advertising for Lexus, great, and the filmmaker gets some that, money. That scene right? actually almost looked like a Lexus ad. It did, yeah. didn't it? You know, so it's, anyway, so, and with the screens, he, when he talked on one of the screens, the, um, like a video conference call um, to, I think it was to Lamar, uh, it was a see-through computer screen and it had down the bottom Nokia. Nokia. Now, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because it's 2002 and Nokia is the world leading phone. It's all over the Telecommunication. Place. Are they the leading brand now? No. <laughs> no. Unfortunately. They've tried to come back a couple of times, Nokia, but they haven't quite nailed on the head. But in 2002, you would expect the futurists would be like, well, they would be the one leading that technology. No. Everyone's got a Nokia, right? Yeah. Well, in fact, there's a, a book I read called The Innovator's Dilemma by yeah. Clayton Christensen. Right. And that's all about this process whereby large, established, sensible companies make sensible decisions but fail. <laughs> and this is the this is the case Nokia, and it, he's he's got a number of case studies in there in the um, hard drive manufacturing space. Mm. Uh, he didn't pick up on the phones because this is from 1998 or something rather. Uh, looking at you know. Um, Diggers, so they used to be all cable-driven, you know, backhoe diggery type things. Yeah, and now they're like pneumatic, uh, hydraulic, sorry, um, diggers, which oh. were yeah, like and which were unheard of. Like the idea of it, they were they were heavy, awkward, not very strong, couldn't carry much, useless basically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and in the end of that book, he talks about electric cars. He says, so what? And this is 1998. He says, so what do I think would be a uh, a disruption in an uh, industry coming up. He says, well, uh, you know, it's got to fit these, you know, he has some criteria and he goes through it. It's got to fit all of that. And he says, well, I reckon it'd be electric cars. Mm. And the reason for that is because at the time, electric cars seem really useless. You know, like if you're General Motors and someone says, we should make an electric car, you go, well, hold on, we'll get no range. There's nowhere to recharge them because you want to charge them with no range. And if you do charge them, it takes hours to do. Yeah. And it's going to be really expensive. You know, these batteries are really expensive. We get some decent batteries, cost too much. And then, you know, the everything that, everything about the car basically is not what we have come to expect cars should be now. Yeah, it's not the combustible but, engine, right? But the point is, though, that there's going to be a niche for these electric vehicles. Like, you know... And and that's and that's what it, and it's come to pass. So this is back, you know, twenty something years ago. He mm. predicted this, and it's come to pass that Tesla basically came in, and I remember Tesla came out, and everyone was like, 
no one's going to want that. It's too expensive. You don't get enough range. It's just pointless. Yeah. And now all of a sudden, you know, BMW, General well, they're Motors, all, they're Ford, all doing it, they're yeah. all going, shit, quick, make yep. electric cars. Mm. But they're all about 10 years behind Tesla. Mm. And so they're, they're struggling and, and wrestling and they're trying to get their um, – uh, logistics in place, you know, yeah. their the delivery systems so they can get their battery systems to them and everything. Yeah. Tesla's already got all of that worked out. They, yeah. Tesla's got factories. They've got their own battery factories to feed in and they can just produce cars and cars, yeah, yeah. whereas General Motors is, is going, well, we've just got to buy whatever batteries we can get a hold of yeah. and, you know, we can't buy enough to create a pipeline of vehicles that will, you know, like they're struggling. Mm basically to get it in. So and it, Nokia, I think, suffered the same thing. So yeah. we're on top of the world. You know, they went, oh, these these big screens are too expensive. The touch is inaccurate. You can't have enough memory on them. You know, they're, you, you know we don't have um, 4G, Cameras. for example. Who wants a camera on a phone? Yeah, and <laughs> there was no 4G. We're talking yeah. 2G back yeah, at the yeah. time, which was you couldn't use the internet on that. Yeah. And so no sensible person in Nokia would have promoted anything like the iPhone. Mm. It would have just been, no, that's ridiculous. You would never, that doesn't serve any of the features that people want from a phone. People want a small phone. Can you remember the joke yeah, is yeah. they're getting smaller, smaller and smaller? And smaller yeah. They don't want like a great big phone the size huh. of a calculator. Huh. They, they, you know, they don't want to have a short battery life, no internet connection, although it turns out they're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, there you go. That's Nokia. And just a fun fact, sorry, here in WA, Tesla's uh, whatever model it is, that that regular hatchback model, Mm. I don't know what it is, T-Series, someone out there, correct me, um, has it's the second highest selling car in WA for this last quarter. Which is, I'd buy one if I could afford it. Yeah, but it just suddenly shows you, like it's suddenly, you know, the the number one is the Hyundai i30 hatchback Mm. and then, and it's something like 500 car sales and the Tesla's coming in at number two at like 314. So Mm. it's it's like pushed over the Corolla, it's pushed over the other one. So it's like, hmm, the tide is changing. I'd I'd definitely get one. And you are right in the logistics, like just recently... They have gotten their logistics to Australia on a more um, regular basis. Yeah. So, like up to now, it's been a little bit more sporadic, but they've suddenly like clicked in those gears and and gotten it. And also, the they're, they've last year they had an agreement with Western Australian mining companies to for the lithium. Yes. So, like the, you, what you're saying, the supply chain, they've taken that next step. That's the term I've looking for. Supply chain. Yeah. Yes. So they've they've taken. You're exactly right. They've been in. They've been doing it for longer now, and they know that they have to, to keep up to demand on their end. They have to have those supply well, chains. You've got to them. think that if uh, General Motors, you know, Holden basically mm. says we've finally got a electric car model we're happy with, let's start making it. Like we won't see it here in Australia for ages, like no, because right. the factories aren't here. No. And they've got to somehow ship them and they've got to get them certified for Australia. Like that's yeah. a whole nother question. You know, yeah. like uh, it's going to be years before. And so there's still going to be several years where you could be able to get the Tesla, hey, a, a handful of couple of like, the, like maybe the Nissan Leaf I think you can get here, yeah, yeah. but not much. Yeah. And no one cares about it because no one likes it. Like what yeah. would you rather drive, a Nissan Leaf or a Tesla? You know, you go, well, I'd like to drive a Tesla, please. Uh, that's well, right, yeah. Maybe that's just me because I'm a <laughs> fat nerd. Yeah, but so anyway. it's a disruptor. They're, they're yeah. exactly right. Yeah, that's right. 
So uh, just to quickly run through Tom Cruise, he plays John Anderton. Good old John. They love that name, don't John. they? John. It's in a lot of these movies. Jack, uh, John. Both love, strong names. I love this actor, Max von Snydo, I think, or Sido. Uh, he plays Lamar Burgess, a great name for the bad guy. Colin Firth, who you kind of think is the bad guy. Oh, Farrell. Yeah, Firth is the Aussie actor, isn't he? Colin Farrell plays Danny Whitwer. Uh, and Samantha Morton plays Agatha Lively. Um, this was filmed in the United States, really huge Spielberg kind of blockbuster budget for the time, 102 mil. Oh, that's and max. it returned 358 mil at the box office, so it did quite well. Critics kind of didn't like this that much at the time, but over time, if you read a lot of it now, the response seems to be that it's been reassessed mm. as a really classic sci-fi, which I found interesting because it was one that when I saw it, I thought, this is a good film. Like, this is a really good... It's complicated. Uh, it's He kind of tricks you in the story into thinking that John Anderton is going to kill that guy and then when he doesn't, it kind of spices the story. It's also quite, quite an interesting climax. We'll come to that in a moment. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot going on and, and doing that choreographed computer scene became part of pop culture so it was a it was a, it's a really interesting film this one so i was uh, reading those reviews and looking back and people reassessed it i found that quite interesting yeah I, I think it helped that a number of the yeah as you said a number of the elements have kind of played out in yeah, reality that's, maybe right? that's it maybe just over time people were oh hang on people did actually like this film and mm. it affected society and <laughs> I mean it's that Tom Cruise scene of him navigating the computer is like Neo and the blue pill red pill it's a pop culture reference yeah. so I think if a film has a moment that becomes part of pop culture you've got to say that that's well, people an still refer to pre-crime yeah they talk right. about it yeah. yeah so anyway we run into three act structure what's the first act sorry first act Qu- nice is, and quickly tonight well first act is the introduction Yep. And the introduction, as it sounds, introduces the characters, mm. the world, the theme, uh, any sort of problems, possibly some desires and motivations. Yep. We, we need a, a quick you know, entry into the world, particularly with a film you've got an hour and a half, two hours at most. Yep. Uh, the important, Spielberg has longer. <laughs> yes, Spielberg gets a bit longer. So does James Cameron. There's yep. a few, few people get a bit longer. Yep. Uh, the, the important part of... Act one, though, is towards the end of it, you end up with this um, moment where the audience, as an audience member, that's when you know what the story is going to be sort of yeah. about, where it's heading, what what idea you're point? supposed to think about. Mm. And we'll talk about this uh, with Minority Report. It's quite good. Shortly after that, you've got some sort of a, a debate, some sort of is that really going to be the story? Is it not going to be the story? Will mm. the main character find their way towards doing this yep. change will it how will it affect them and invariably they they do finally go yeah you know i do i need to embrace this change i need to find out what's going on mm. and move into act two act two is the fun and games you know it's them on the journey it's them exploring the story their decisions whatever the catalyst was kind of like they're trying to play it out now maybe it is good times maybe it's not so good times but basically it's like the trailer of the film it's what we came here to see we then hit about the middle of the film called the midpoint and the midpoint is when things get really serious um, that's when some of the stuff they've been trying on their journey maybe fails or 
um, what they thought was going to work out doesn't. Um, and then this starts sort of leading them down a particular path of really things probably going a bit haywire. Um, we have expressions from storytellers or story writing craft like the bad guys close in or all is lost and that pivotal dark night of the soul moment. Um, but basically all these beats are heading the character to a moment where really everything they tried, so the fun bits and the bad bits and the journey, they have to hit a moment where it's kind of all not worked. Mm. So everything they did try to solve the catalyst now is at a point where it hasn't worked. They're, you know, they're sitting on the side of the road. I was waiting for the side tire, of the road. It's raining, but the, and their wife is giving birth to their first son, firstborn son at a hospital that's kilometers away or miles away. And, you know, like, what do they do? Like, how are they going to get there? And of course, they open up their wallet, but they don't have their wallet that was stolen earlier in the movie, or they spent all of every last money on trying to make more money and that didn't work out. So, what does this person do? And so, there is that dark night of the soul, or just a real um, unrelenting moment in the crux of the story. And at that moment, that's when they have to decide hang on, okay. Uh, you know what, I've got a new plan. You could put straw into that flat tyre and push it off the side of the road and make it to the hospital. Or, you know, in fact, I've never trusted humans, but I'm going to ask for help. I've never oh asked God. for it. I'm going to actually ask for help, you know. So so they do something that they've never really tried before. And by doing that, takes them into Act 3. In Act 3, of course, they, they gear up for this final assault mm. on the finale. Trying and to make it to the hospital. They move out. Yeah, let's let's <laughs> whatever follow, it is. Let's follow that. You know, they they go. I'm going to ask for help, and they they stick out their thumb, and someone picks them up. Someone really nice. And they go. This is really nice, and they're chatting along, uh, and the, you have like a reversal. Like it, it seems like everything's going to work out, but there's almost always some sort of reversal. There's a little catch, which. Makes, well, then maybe they say something which that makes offends you, the driver. You have to. Yeah, they've got to work a bit harder, and so yeah. the the driver, uh, the driver, as it turns out, is is cataleptic yeah. and suddenly falls into a coma. Like they shouldn't be driving, I know, but they suddenly have a, a sort of small coma and it, it the car crashes and suddenly the, the hero has a has out. a hurt leg. Yeah. And they go, Oh my God, you know, how is this gonna work out? Ah, oh, I remember that CPR course and they reach over and they go to give this guy CPR but uh um you know and save them just as the ambulance because this guy he knows he he's in trouble, and the ambulance turns up to to save him, and so he goes, "No, I'm all right." But this guy, he's got his wife at this hospital and the broken leg. They have no worries; we can get you there. Suddenly, by learning, implementing something he's learned, mm. he manages to turn this seemingly awful situation, like this reversal, which has just like upended his dreams, yeah, into the victory. Yeah. And that's where we have like that that final sort of. The final image, basically, where where we have the the real finale, everything turns out one way or the other, and the final image shows us what the world is like now. Mm. You know, what can we expect if we if we come back in a couple of years' time? This is what we should expect. You know, we we should get an idea of what's going to go on here. Yeah, the happily ever after, so yeah. to speak. Even though it might not be that, it might be. It, it, it could be a, a gloom, devastating yeah, tragedy. It could be, or if you go the cabin in the woods, you yeah, know, yeah. the big god comes out to destroy the earth. That's and, right. <laughs> but uh, but you're satisfied by that because that's what you wanted to have happen. You, you want did. you sort of wanted to see something. Yes. 
So let's go through the, the, some of those key beat points for Minority Report and also talk about some of those moments in a bit more of the film language-wise. So this film, um, Spielberg said to his cinematographer, I want the dirtiest, grimiest-looking piece of cinema to open the Minority Report. Mm. And a lot of people have talked about this, a lot of film theorists out there, you can look into it. They're like, this is very unusual start for a Spielberg film. There's about a, 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 I don't know if it's like four or five minute opening segment of this film that is, it's like a music video clip. You know, mm. it's distorted, it's dreamlike, it's weird shapes. It's black it's and white. grey and, and there's grainy and bits. Repeats and repeats. And and yeah, there's, and it's it kind of gives us the impression of someone stabbing someone and we see a flash of a man and all this kind of thing. And and it does go for a good probably five minutes. So I think I think the cinematographer achieved that actually. Um, so that the opening image of this is quite bleak. Uh, and then we kind of cut into this... Uh, Apple world again, the, well, the clean Apple yeah, cause world. Yeah, because it gets you thinking that you've got like that real noir feeling, you know, yeah. like that black and white distorted footage. Yeah. Then it, it, it comes into, I I took note here of the fact it comes to the wooden ball being cut by lasers, yeah. like, you know, it's this surgical precision. So you're going from this really, you know, like you said, distorted, grungy looking footage. Yep. Which just repeats and it's nonsensical, dreamlike. To suddenly you got like the exact opposite, which is like a the perfect orchestrated machine, mm. lasers slicing, polishing, dropping balls, mechanical. Everything is going exactly as planned. It's mm. the exact opposite. The snooker ball drops down. <laughs> yeah, which which uh, I didn't remember the reason for it. You know, yeah. so I was watching, it going. What a bizarrely convoluted way of getting a name! <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a mouse trap, isn't it? It's like yeah. it's it's there's comedy to it, but maybe then that way it's like it's it's not just a digital message. Maybe like it's it's literally a visceral message, isn't it? You know? Yeah, and it's red, and it's red. So you know, it's it's very. I mean, it's film. It's visually sh- it's showing. Not telling, sorry. Well, see, this is, of course, why we know that Spielberg is very experienced at this. He's mm. he's not an amateur. He's done this. and He's, he's making us like, watch it and analyse it. He's got a style. He's yeah. learnt it and he's gone, well, yeah, I could just have like a little printout of paper, brrr, yeah. a name. And a screen on the and, screen. And that would work. And yeah. for some films, a certain variety film, that would work. Yeah, I remember the starting of Alien has a lot of that. Like, yeah. it's like a, just brrr, 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 yeah. brrr. <laughs> but that's trying to give you that isolation feeling mm, of, yeah. of there's nothing here that's human. But this here is, yeah, it's it's so hypnotic, the movement of it. You can go onto YouTube now and look for satisfying videos mm. and there's all these sort of computer graphics of very realistic animations of extremely uh, highly choreographed uh, movements of machines cutting and slicing and moving and... Ooh, and nice. So on. And, and you watch it and it does, it feels satisfying because, you know, these blades cut through some sheet of paper just perfectly, which then yeah. falls exactly. You know, it's beautiful. Mm. Yeah. So then we're sort of introduced to this police department, aren't we? And John, and we get this choreograph. Yeah, John O, the year's 2054. The year's 2054. It's kind of a, um, I, I liked how John comes kind of like, 
pacing into the, you know, and we're behind him, like the yeah. camera follows him and it's, I, I, like, I like how these police stations are never really what police stations would ever be like. but they're, Or they're, any office situation no, I've ever been in. You know, like they just, there's sort of weird ramps going up somewhere up to the next level <laughs> and uh, and people people all, you know, like it's an Apple store. Or they, well, the joke is made in the um, Last Action Hero. Yeah. Have you ever seen that one where... Uh, have you seen Last Action? Yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. Where they go into the LA Police Department. We've just seen it earlier in the real world. Now we're in the cinema world. Yeah. And cinema world, it's, yeah, there's glass screens <laughs> and there's, yeah, like multiple tiers of mezzanine levels yeah. and computers and, and people, like everyone looks beautiful. Yeah. And it's just, it's just uh, you go, I've walked into a lot of office buildings. Even, you know, I've been in some high-tech fancy yeah, office yeah. building being in, in the IT career. Never seen anything like that. No, 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 no. Certainly it's... not the the level of beauty. I, I mean, I, I <laughs> well, feel... you're not in IT, so yeah, you're not in IT. <laughs> I, I, I feel well at home in the offices I've gone to. You know, not yeah. like walking in there and you sort of look and go, "There's like Tom Cruise and there's that guy from uh, those other was his McDonald or McDowell or whatever his name is with the yeah. blonde hair with the weird eyes." Yeah, and he's yeah. You go, oh, I feel really plain. <laughs> <laughs> um. But anyway, we learn a bit about John here apart from the cinematic choreographed zooming in whatever. Um, but we sort of learn that, yeah, he's the chief, he's the professional. Mm. We're kind of learning the system. Again, what I like here is this idea of showing, not telling. This film does a really – I just want to note here, like it takes about 30 minutes of the film for us to actually learn how it all works, mm. right, from the start of the film – Spielberg shows us moments like the lasers and the snooker pool thing, right? We don't have to really ever see that again, but we see that. We see John do his zip, zip, zip thing on the computer. You know, we see that they rush to stop the crime. Then we get told about the sort of precogs, you know what I mean? So so it's kind of is like he just gives us pieces of information. It takes about 30 minutes. It's pretty solid sort of – it's not just like two people sitting down, you and I, and go – Oh, we're in the future, and uh, there's precogs, and they they do pre crime, and they tell who, and we arrest them. But you know what I mean? Like they could just yeah. do that, and films do that. Or you and I say the voiceover yeah, the, or the the, the text, text scroll, the text scroll, right? Like, and we're not talking about Star Wars text scroll. That's very different. We're talking about you know oh, the year is twenty fifty four and three precogs. You know, like there was no need to do that. He kind of quite masterfully, I believe slowly breaks that information down mm. over about 30 minutes. And I really appreciated that. I liked that. Um, but we do learn that John is, you know, he's the action hero. He's the guy in calm. He's the one with all the information, all that sort of stuff. We cut to this beautiful house and we see the husband and wife and it's the, I thought about because you described with Extinction Coming down to breakfast, it's that, isn't it? He comes down to breakfast. Yeah, and the wife it's that and scene, isn't it's it? It's that same scene and the wife and that. But this time he, the the man is actually saying, maybe I should chuck a suki. And she's going, no, nah, I think you've got that presentation or something. And um, <laughs> In my house it's the other way. Sorry, you're not feeling well. You, you, you need more sleep. Just take day off sick. Oh, no, well, I might as well go to work. I'm like, <laughs> so I might as well go to work while I'm sick. Just work from chuck, home, that chuck is. Chuck a sickie. Yeah, yeah. No, um, no, it's okay. If I said uh, that to my wife, I'm like, I'm going to chuck a sickie. She'd be like, hell yeah. yeah. Send the kids and let's go. <laughs> Picnic in the park. <laughs> That's right. So um, 
you know, or you take the kids to school. Okay, <laughs> yeah, you got the kids to school. I can have the day off. Um, so, so yeah, we, we sort of see that and he's, he seems suspicious. The son, it's again, it's quite a good dialogue. You want to learn dialogue. It's a good dialogue scene because the mum, that all, you know, it's very much, you, you probably do this as a family. Mm. Everyone sort of talks to each other at once. Mm. And that's what happens in that scene. Did you notice like the mum and the son are doing something about their presentation or he's studying or something. The husband's intention is, Maybe I should stay home with you today. The wife answers that, but they keep having the con- yeah. she keeps having the conversation with the son. So it's a good dialogue there. Well, th- this is quite a nice little scene also because it is uh, you're recognizing fragments from that broken dream that we yeah, saw. Yeah, that's right. We sort of noticed um, the man is the man, and we've, and and we've seen Tom Cruise doing his little bit with the the computers yeah. and seeing. And so now I was just genuinely curious to know how is this going to turn into a murder? Yeah, because at the moment. Yeah, that I can see fine. he's he's a bit um, he's suspicious. He's There's suspicious, something, yeah. and he's you can see he's a bit tense. Yeah, but he doesn't look like a murderous sort of fellow. No. Like, and it's a world that's very um, glossy. the The lighting is very. He's and in fact, I thought he just did this at the start of this film. But a lot of the film, the um, white is really no, overexposed. Yes. I, was, I was going to talk about that in this yeah. because there's a, uh, and I think this goes back to, at the at the very least, it may be earlier than this, but the Wizard of Oz, you yeah. know, where it's all black and white, she arrives in Oz and it's colourful, it becomes colour. Yeah. And in this film here, we have uh, a lot of this high, you know, white balance or, or contrast mm. and a, a very lot of film grain. I think yeah. you're talking about film grain. I'm just trying to think about which episode. But anyway, we're talking about, you know, if, again, if the director has got film grain showing, mm. it's particularly, you know, on a streaming service or on a DVD, as yeah. this was done, it's because they want it to look grainy. Correct, yeah. And yeah. this is distinctly grainy. There's moments that we'll get to where it goes different. Yeah, the coloration is quite yeah. different and it's a lot cleaner. Yeah. But this is part of that and it's that, that you know, a lot of white is reflecting off things yeah, and we and get... It's uh, actually ramped up. That exposure of the shot is mm. ramped up and, and it actually does continue throughout a lot of the film. The exterior shots, it's almost like the whole world is a bit white and overblown, you know, like if you overblew a photograph, it can be very white um, and it, it, it kind of does that. And anyway, he, so they figure out that this man, they figure out where he is and he turned mm. the building, the, the brick type or something, isn't it, right? Yeah. And so then they, Tom Cruise and that, they all get in these jetpack things and they fly off in this thing that goes up yeah, it's into almost the sky. Like a, and, what is it, the Thunderbird style yeah, where they go up in this elevator thing and they <laughs> jump in these flying I really, ships? I, and, yeah, I didn't, the humans are kind of stacked on top of each other. Yeah, well, it's like, like, like a, a roller coaster thing. Kind yeah, of if you'd thing imagine inside. them all in a string, and then there's like a roll, they get rolled, they up, get rolled into up into the yeah. ship, into the ship, and it takes obviously because it's that streamlined, it can get there a lot faster than a helicopter could, I guess. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and so he, they get off, and meanwhile, we see the husband leaves for the day. Uh, he walks off. The man across the street kind of who was hovering and we saw in the dream, he then enters the house. Now, the husband has actually not gone to work. He is chucking a sickie oh. and he creeps behind the tree. Um, and I do want to say that that, to me, initiated something that Stabilberg has decided this whole film, it's very similar to like a film noir film. Yes. So even though it's science fiction, 
it's almost just like a murder mystery genre film in Absolutely. terms of how it looks. So how the characters walk and creep and even how the mystery of the story unfolds, it's like one of those old 1950s, 1960s. could be an Alfred Hitchcock well, film. Well, isn't the, the classic opening is, you know, it was a dark and stormy night yeah. and I was minding my own business trying to drown away the terrible memories <laughs> and yeah. in Scotch when... She walked into my life. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's the same thing here, really. Isn't and it? and the same thing happens here, except in this case, the she that walks into his life is a precognitive, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, mutant. I, I'm, it wasn't clear exactly how they became precognitive, some sort yeah. of experiment. But anyway, well, they were the kids of junkies, basically, yeah. isn't it? But but what I wanted to say is, if you're out there and you enjoy your mystery movies or your film noir sort of movies, this movie does have that style. It does. To it, in the narrative, it's there, and it's also in the just the look of the film. And in the characters, too. Yeah, like yeah. Tom Cruise's character is a yeah, junkie, is a drug he's a, yeah, addicted. Which is like the old alcoholic detective. Yeah, he's, you know, he's doesn't look after trying himself. Trying to forget his wife, but can't. can't yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, but deep down he's a good guy. Deep down he just then, wants what's good. And then good. he gets accused of the murder, right? Like, yeah. there ain't no murderer. It's the same as actually North by Northwest. Now that I think about it, <laughs> it's mm. a very similar plot point. Um, so yeah, he, um, but he gets there in time. The team get there on that weird roll. They all jump out of the sky out of that machine and. Of course, he's faced with a wall. This is where the tension is great by Spielberg. Isn't it? It's like a wall of homes that are all the same. And he like calls back, in the memory, was it uh, the door was open or the door was closed? Was the door open, the door was closed? And, of course, yeah. that cuts inside the house where you can see the husband like gets his great big pair of scissors. Who owns those types of scissors? I always want to know. No, I don't know. I, I don't own those kind of scissors. They're like a foot long sort of scissors. No, we've got kids. We only have those safety scissors. Yeah, I know. We've just got we've, and I can never find our scissors. Um, anyway, and then you said that, and then Tom is like calling back to the base, and they, they, that assistant brings up the memory. He's like, "Which door? The door swipe through. Oh, the door was open." Then he just runs across the street Mate, in know, Tom Cruise fashion. In Tom Cruise, and of course the husband's then you know ripping the. Cheating husband, a cheating wife off the guy as they were about to have sex, and he's about to stab him when you know Tom Cruise is on top of him and grabs that arm. And I think he said, "Does he say something like I wasn't going to do it? I'm resting you for the intention to kill your wife or something.' Oh, know, yeah, so. the pre-crime of the murder. pre-crime, yeah, pre-crime murder. So, and the great thing there is they all act like. That's normal. That's fine. Like that's totally mm. we're used to doing this. The husband is a little bit more like you and I as an audience going, huh? He hasn't actually killed her. You know, like, I, what? I, I like, didn't do anything. I haven't yeah, done anything. I didn't even do anything. I wasn't going to hurt her. You know. And you're like, yeah. How how are you arresting him? You know. So I liked that about that that scene. Um, we then learn that John is a bit of a junkie. He gets drugs off the street. This is, I think, where the theme is stated. Sorry, by the guy that has no eyeballs. No eyeballs. I can't uh, exactly remember what he says, but he says something like, "The eyes, the eyes are the windows." To the oh no, no, <laughs> he says, like uh, "Or those with the eyes have the knowledge, or something." Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, I did if remember it. I know. I was like, "Oh, that's the theme." Oh my goodness me! But anyway, so, it, it also is a bit of a foreshadowing of is, of, of Tommy pulling his eyeballs out. Yeah. But we, you, you jumped over all Whitwer, Danny. Rocks oh, up. Okay, yep. Because I thought that was interesting because immediately we get that painting that Danny's out to, you know, thwart things. Yes, he is. He's, isn't he? he's a bit of a bleeding heart. 
He because doesn't like the system. He looks at the, the precogs and he says, oh, will they ever get out? No, they don't ever get out. They're just stuck there and they're drugged to their eyeballs the whole time. And he's like, oh, that, hmm, okay. That doesn't sound very good. <laughs> and, and it's funny because initially you're thinking, yeah, you're, you're bleeding heart liberal. They're doing good work here. You can't stop that. Mm. But, of course, later on you realise that oh, it is kind of a bit cruel yeah, keeping it is. these it is. kids. Like you've never really even asked if they want to do that. Yeah, I found that like Whitwer, I agree, like it's almost like at first he's very abrupt and he's cold and he's a bit rude and mm. abrupt to Tom Cruise and co. But it's the same as, as I said, with that husband that, He's kind of almost like that other voice in the conversation going, yeah, hang on, how does this work? Who's agreed to this? Has anyone thought that you're mistreating these people? Oh, no, we just drug them up. Yeah, that's not very nice. (laughs) How does it actually work, But Like, oh, well, you know, they see the future. Yeah, but how does that work, you know? How do you know it's telling the truth? Like, And you start to go, yeah, he's... He's kind of right here. Like, what's going on? I don't think there's really a problem. If you had some way of predicting crime like this, I don't think there's a problem of interceding. Mm. But putting those halos on them and stacking them in a you know a basement somewhere, <laughs> like they haven't done the crime. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they were going to as close to knowing that they're going to as you could. Like, you know, Tom Cruise literally grabbed that guy's arm as it was swinging down with scissors. Yeah. But, okay, you've stopped it. Yeah. So attempted murder yeah. or, as I said, you know, um, assault yeah. because he was threatening. It was a, a dangerous thing. But surely you're better off, yeah, counselling them. Yeah. Like if you if you knew someone was planning to kill someone, go catch them and say, hey, let's talk about this. You know, this is we can solve this problem a lot better. Now, uh, is this the catalyst then, Whitworth? Well, this is – I was confused a bit. But I, and I think the reason I was confused, I'm thinking, is – these are films that I've seen before, so I know where they're going. Yeah. So it is often harder. And I was thinking, okay, so... Like, what are you saying is the catalyst? There, there's, two, there's two bits. One, one is, let me see where it's... Because um, to me, one could be... One, uh, the obvious one is John being accused he's going to murder someone, right? Yeah, so... But that, but that, that doesn't happen. That happens quite a little bit into the story. Oh, I was looking at this ad for the um, absolute infallibility of pre-crime, mm. which to me, you know, may rub me up the wrong way where someone says it's absolutely infallible. You yeah. go, well, it's not. Yeah, no, but, it uh, and then vote on pre-crime is coming up yeah. on whether it's going to go ahead nationally. And to me, uh, watching the second time, certainly I went, oh, gee, that's when you're hearing there's some political thing, you're mm. going, oh. There's going to be meddling. Mm. You don't know if it's going to be Danny or who it is. But, yeah, I think that was the catalyst there because yeah. I got that feeling as something, someone's going to meddle in this absolute, you know, perfect situation. Yeah. Which makes sense. And we're going to discover it's... it's not absolutely perfect. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's the crux of the story, isn't it, is that John is accused and in John being accused... You know, it's set up, and then, but then John gets through the setup, and yeah. he, he ultimately unravels the system that he believed in. But so that is the question of the whole film, isn't it? Because he he is challenged by Danny about yeah. the infallibility. Yeah. So it's kind of like the that's sort of the debate is: yeah. does he listen to Danny, and or does he go, no, 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 this needs to go ahead, mm. and he does go, and it's about I marked it as about. 
half an hour in, mm. the red ball drops yeah, that with is, John's name so that, on it. That's the second act. And because I was yeah. thinking, because I knew this was coming, I was going, is that the catalyst? And I was going, Jesus, yeah, it's, it's a long way in. Yeah, I mean, it's too long. It's too long. I would have lost some interest by now. Like it's quite an interesting film up yeah, to yeah. the half hour point anyway, the yeah. first half hour is. But it would be very be like... What's the point of all this? Yeah. Like there's so much action and I've seen a few movies like where it's just so much action and things are going on but you kind of go, yeah, but why? Yeah, why am I watching What it? What, yeah. what are the stakes? What's yeah. interesting here? What What am I suspecting is going to happen? I'm sus- not really suspecting anything's going to happen. Yeah, and I, I think the thing is Whit, Whit Word does turn I, – I think for me the inside and incident is basically – if you think about it, John's in this little bubble of he's the expert, he's the chief, he's oh, and the he's guy so running. Sure, like he's, when Danny comes in and says, he's the master. I'm going to go see him. And says, well, no, you're not because yeah. I'm in charge. And then he hands in the paper and, and John sort of reads it and goes, hmm, okay, yeah. well, so, I guess you are. <laughs> so so Whitmore being, uh, yeah, Whitmore being there, sorry, not Whitmore, Whitmore being there, to me, that's probably the catalyst, I reckon. Like him, so, cause mm. the, catalyst, so the catalyst is this pre-crime program is going to be investigated yeah. and it's not just a rubber stamp. It's going to be investigated heavily. Yeah. And realistically that sort of sets in motion everything, doesn't it, really? Because yes. then what we've learned later in the film, of course, is Lamar well, sets it even, up John. It so adds that, that doubt in John's mind yeah. about the infallibility. Cause That's he's, right. I mean, and to be fair, there was no murder no. in Washington. Yeah, for six No years. one's been murdered. You're like, well... That is actually really good. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And they say they do say the the real planned murders have totally stopped. Like yeah, any, any premeditated. premeditated. No one's done one no of those in yeah. a long time. Yeah. So during this debate, then um, we do learn things that the federal government plans to make it a, a national program if they agree with it. Um, we do also have the idea of we were investigating Agathus. Uh, sorry, yeah, he wants to investigate the precogs. We learn about them. There's kind of a bit of a, what's the word in a murder mystery of that, the scientist guy, he's a sort of set up that he might be a bit of a creepy guy, isn't it? Oh, the, like, the red herring. The red herring, yes. yeah, that's what it is. I was, I was just trying to think. And I like point? the terminology where they talk about the temple is yeah. where the precogs are. And as it turns out, Danny was in training to be a priest. Yes. And a couple of times the film so he, a a... he kisses a... a a holy yeah. thing or whatever it is that if you're a holy person and you have a thing that you kiss, um, let us know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> I assume it's a, it's a bit twisty really kissing crucifix, isn't it? Yeah. So but, it, well, as I said, it's shown to us here, which is quite good that, mm. you know, the precogs have a flash that takes the three of them. Agatha is the strongest. And we also learn about how they're arrested. And then again, it's shown to us by, John questioning the vision and then him going to that weird warden guy that's in all the Coen Brothers movies. Yeah, um, and in the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Yeah, he, he's great, that guy. He's got such a great voice. Yes. Like his voice is so great. Oh, he's in that Disney movie Holes as well. Yeah, right, yeah. But the Co- I know the Coen Brothers love him. He's yeah. in a lot of the Coen Brothers movies. But, yeah, like it, he's a weird warden and, again, it – Gives us a lot of context, like you know, he's, eat, he's eating eggs, he's cooking eggs and bacon there, like it's it's odd. And he plays a, hi, a he, pipe organ, yeah. To like, the, which to again, the, this is straight after visiting the temple and the guy yeah. being a priest, and now he's playing the pipe organ, and, and you're like, oh, that's very Catholic. When they bring up the um, uh, the prisoners, it's it's like they're 
pillars, aren't they? Of yeah, it looks like uh, of... the, the Fortress of Solitude in yeah. uh, the first Superman films. It's a bit bizarre how that all works, but it's... um Anyway, so and he, he does realise there that there's a memory of Agatha uh, missing. missing. Yeah. So he's kind of... That puts more doubt in John, doesn't it, you know? Um, and it just so happens that that happens that then after that, the fork in the road here is that then he's accused of murder. Yeah, so now he's he's got a bit of doubt that this could possibly be true and he's, you know, sort of been shown this uh, Anne Lively murder which is missing one of the pieces mm. and then he's going to be murdering but he knows nothing about this murder. He can't imagine how he would be motivated to murder yeah. someone. And it's great, isn't it? Because he, he sort of, it's like murder. Murder killed. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't quite do it in this movie, does it? But um, uh, like Demolition Man, the yeah, voice murder, of Murder, death, kill. <laughs> yeah. Murder, death, kill. Um, yeah. the, the ball comes out and he gets the vision first, doesn't he? And he can see it's him. Yeah. And that, that judge or whatever also goes, I don't quite know what I'm looking at. He just turns it off. And I thought, mm. yeah, well, doesn't that, what he just did then, doesn't that show you the system is skewed? Yeah. Because if the sheriff him can just turn off the, the judges yeah, yeah, yeah. does say something about the system well well that's the point that danny makes is the flaw in the system is always a human always a human and yeah. he, he found the little inhaler of the drug yes yeah. i might have found the flaw yeah so the other thing here is the b story i think is tom's son yeah the so, son. so it's kind of been hinted you know when he does the drugs uh back at his apartment you know he he plays these weird you know, little two-dimensional, three-dimensional sort of holographic visions of the kid. So that's sort of before he's accused of murder uh, in the plot. But to me, this is like the B story is his son. And isn't it uh, really cool? I was just remembering after he leaves, uh, you know, the the, the, the pre-crime room mm. and, you know, that guy says, look, I like you. I'm going to give you two minutes before we hit the alarm. Yeah. And he so he runs and jumps in the elevator and Danny's in there with him. Yeah. And Danny says, you know, uh, you've got something you've got to tell me, isn't it? And John's thinking, oh, shit, he knows somehow that I'm a pre-crime murderer. And he holds up the drug thing and so he realizes, I oh, know he doesn't. John pulls a gun on him. Yeah. And he says, yeah, I'm not really worried. I don't hear any alarms sounding. <laughs> and then, beep, beep, yeah. beep. Murder, like, death, kill. Yeah. Like, and he goes, oh, oh, no. Well, maybe you are. <laughs> I'm in an <laughs> elevator with a dude pulled a gun. Yeah, yeah. This could be a, you know. That was a good sort of. Twisting of the screwdriver, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, and then off off runs John. That's good. Yeah, so he goes running and... Um, he has his auto drive car thing out and Which yoga. straight away I thought, like, surely if it's all auto, they'd just turn off the car. Like, And yeah. then they do. Yeah, they do. So they, it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, you're returning to base. You are. Yeah. Hmm. And then it's also, then he's walking, he's running. So this is the fun and games. You know, it's like John on the loose when you're acute. Oh. So he was the guy that grabbed people. And we saw how quickly they could grab that husband at the yeah. start of the film. So... Now he's accused. Who's going to get him, and how quickly? And how how you know how quickly does the society identify John and use the retina, and then come after him in that roller coaster? Well, they did, drone yeah, thing. thing. And, and then they had the they had the, the big jet, jet pack. pack, the jetpack fire. <laughs> that was good because again, I I forgot how funny this was as well, where yeah, he got have the dragged fight. up the wall and yeah. they they get into the apartment and he presses the afterburner or whatever, and the flame comes out, hits the grill with yeah, the hamburgers right. and cooks the hamburgers. Cooks, yeah. And, yeah, and and then he I, does a thing actually in this Spielberg um, where yeah, there's that action going on, and it's like how the action, you know, like that family they they're fighting and they hit the ceiling and their dinner table kind of like 
bounces yeah. up and they go, they go, oh, and they lean back in their chairs. Yeah. Another filmmaker wouldn't necessarily do that, but and then they come crashing through and of course like ruin the table and the dinner and everything. But if they had sat there, they would have gotten hurt. Well, see, that's so, a, a literal fun and games. Isn't it, it is. It? This, it this is. whole chase all the way through to Dr. Heinemann hmm. is fun and games. Yeah. And and Spielberg plays with that. Yeah. So there's, I don't think there's anything too serious that happens here. Like there's, there's some, you know, tense moments, but then there's like, you know, the, the six stick yeah. where he makes the guy chuck on the other guy yeah. excessively. Yeah. And then there's the, the jetpack fight and the yoga scene and there's a few of these things. And then there's this amazing fight in the factory, the Lexus yeah. factory, yeah. where they're fighting in amongst these robots and the, the robots get built. Yeah, the robots just keep going and isn't it a lovely little Lexus ad where <laughs> uh, John gets built into the car and then he just sits up and drives off with it. It's like you almost hear the Lexus voiceover says, cars built around humans. Yeah, you know, right. like built around your lifestyle. Yeah. You know, it's just perfect. It was a terrific fight scene, very futuristic, and you think he's going to get squished and he gets away, which is great. Um, and he does. He goes to what you just said, her name, the... Um, uh, Heinemann. Heinemann, that's it. Yeah, so she's this old woman... And again, I love this, like he rocks up, he climbs the fence into a yard, this weird vine tries to grab him a few times, yeah. scratches him, stings yes. him. Stings him. And of course, bit... then as he's walking really rapidly, he's like starts to not being able to breathe. And so by the time he gets to her and her greenhouse, this little old woman pottering around, she's like, oh, you're going to die really shortly, you know. And so it's a great, it's like a great way of twisting the power play of the scene between the two mm. characters, isn't it? Because if she... As a little old woman, anyone could just come up and kind of put a gun in her face and take the power. But you've broken into a house. She's built this these traps, you know, that only she can kind of solve. You also get an idea of her her ethical standing. Yeah, is like her morality. There is she's not good nor evil. She's kind of a little bit sideways, you know, because she saves him Man, and then scientists. tells a story about you know saving the kids wasn't really what we'd intended but it's not like she's doing anything to stop it no you know she sort of goes oh i do sort of regret those kids mm, oh well that's <laughs> yeah, that's just what's happened yeah and on on with life as it were and she she tells him about the the fact that uh the only place that these memories are stored are in the precogs yeah and and agatha is always the one who disagrees you know, yeah she's the strong one and that's called a minority I, report. And it's called a minority yeah. report yes which is and she's coded it so it gets stored into the precog's brain. Yeah, and yeah. and this is I think we're moving into the the midpoint here where things get a little more serious because we get the eye surgery after this one. Yeah, because he knows he's got to go and find a way of avoiding. I think, I, I think the eye surgery is still. The fun and games, but it is, yeah, it is yeah. because it's still. In fact, it's got that humor in it about the, yeah, yeah the nurse is a little bit funny, and then he eats the ice from the ice box that was holding his eyeballs, and yeah, that's still kind of you. You can still feel a bit of playfulness there, and it's yeah. still playing out what we're expecting this future world and how he escapes. But mm. he turns the tables at that point because once he gets the new eyes. Now he's on the offensive. Yes. Like he's no longer on the run. He's yeah. going back to the cops. He's got a plan. It's true. And he, you know, he jabs himself in the face with that needle that makes his face <laughs> go saggy. Can I, I know you talked a lot, a lot about the spiders scene in that earlier, but can I just say like from a film point of view, it's really interesting that 
So he's done the eye surgery, and the eye surgery itself, great bit of tension that he, <laughs> this doctor just jabs him with the anaesthetic. Mm. So he starts, like, wearing out, and then as he's wearing more and more out, like, slowly passing out, he goes, oh, do you remember me? You know, and it's like, oh, you arrested me, you know, yeah. and it's like, oh, okay, and John's kind of slowly passing out, and it's a great, Is it? and he reveals that he had arrested him years yeah. earlier and sent him to jail and... He was kind of, you know, mistreated, raped or whatever, mistreated in jail. But we're also told, like, he burnt patience. Yeah. <laughs> so he's not like a great... And yet here's John risking his eyeballs. But it's just, it's just great tension builder, isn't it? Even though it's a little bit funny, it's an awesome narrative device that as John... So if you imagine you're John, you're about to pass out, someone's going to cut your eyeballs out and you've just revealed... You were the person that put him in jail, you know. Like, and you did it because he wasn't just treating burns victims; no, he was he was causing <laughs> burns victims. Yes. So there's that. That's a good bit of narrative. The other thing is with the spider scene. Not only is it great tension building, but from a camera point of view, isn't it so cool that they do that above the yeah over the top over the top of the ceiling kind of look of all these apartments that John say John's level and as the spider, it's just such an interesting way to shoot that, isn't it? Because mm. The spiders come in and we're above them. You mentioned before there's like a mother and two little girls. The girls hate the spiders and she's calming them and it, it just kind of keeps tracking over them to another apartment. There's a husband and wife having a real physical, verbal argument and the spiders come in and they, they stop arguing for a moment. Yeah. The spiders scan them and they go to, and then the camera keeps panning, tracking over the top. And there's another guy, like a guy on a toilet, you know, an old guy doing a shit on a toilet. <laughs> like, and then there's John in his, you know, in his apartment. So I just think it's such a interesting way of shooting that, you know, all those apartments yeah, and showing I've, them. Uh, it'd be interesting to know, to, well, so Spielberg, if you're interested in getting <laughs> in touch with us, let us know. Because yeah. we'd like to know how you come up with, well, the idea of shooting it in that fashion. Yeah, you the know, long tracking sort of shot. Because it, it, you know? it shows such, because it could easily have been a low to the ground at yeah. spider level shot, screw, you know, shooting along the floors and you know, following along the point of view of the spiders doing stuff. Yeah. But it wasn't. It wasn't. And then in terms of tension building, you know, John hops into the bath, he's in the bath, the spider comes in, blows it, the spider turns away. It's very, reminded me of Jurassic Park this. Yeah. And then there's a bubble and that bubble is actually what sends the spiders back in. But then at the same time, the cops are descending on his apartment because there was that glitch of there is someone there and there's not someone there, isn't yeah. there? You know? And then, of course, when the spider scans the eyeball, it's not John. And so they, oh, okay, well, we don't have to enter the apartment. Yeah, it's Mr. Yakamoto or whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> so he goes back to pre-crime, as you said, j- jags the face, uses his eyeballs to get in and steals Agatha, right? And flushes himself down the toilet. Flushes him down the toilet. Um, Whitworth is like, there's no way out. Flush. Yeah. Like the, very similar to The Matrix. Flush him down the toilet. Yes, it was. It was a, and also sitting in that... Uh, nutrient solution, solution as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the fact that you can just flush it away. Yeah. Mm. Then and, and off he goes down, dragging Pearl Agatha along. And then we don't see John planning. We see the other detectives doing detective work. You know, yeah. What would they be doing? Why would he nick off with her? Like it's yeah. no good. He's already been pinpointed. And that's when the, the the tech fellow says, "Oh no, well she's got all the memories in her head." Yeah. And, yeah, so Danny's sitting there going, well, let me see. He'd, he'd need special equipment put together to deal with that. And he, and he 
looks at John's desk and sees special equipment yeah. put together and he, <laughs> he manages to find a great big label of Rufus someone or other. Mm. This sleazy-looking fellow down the entertainment district. Uh, and then we cut to John meeting Rufus, you yeah. know, who's dealing with that customer who wants to murder his boss. That would be a terrible, terrible fantasy to have. Like, <laughs> like it's all one thing you think he says, yeah, I'd just like shoot him or something. Uh, it'd be another thing again to like, you know, you shoot him and they don't die immediately and so there's piss and <laughs> blood everywhere and screaming and you yeah. know, go up and shoot them. I'd like, uh, I'd, yeah, I think we've all had a boss at some point in our lives where we might, you know, it might have been a teacher, it might have been a parent, it might have been a actual boss, it might have been, but you it's, know, this is someone thing is, that you really didn't like, you know. It's nice to say, oh, I want to, you know, do this virtual reality to kill my boss, but if you were then actually put in it and had to experience, I, you <laughs> know, you'd suddenly realise that, Oh, this is why people say it's not a nice thing. But mm. maybe that, but this it is, again, this is the debate of the story, right? Like, oh, I really want to kill that person, right? Mm. So come on here and see what it would be like, yes. like in a virtual reality world, right? Now, I know what the argument would be on the other side of the fence. It'd be like, yeah, but you're showing them something. What if they do like it? But I think you'd probably find 99% of people would be like, oh, my God. Yeah, like, that's, that's actually a bit more that horrible. Was so much. I do not want to. Like, you know, they, because mm. most of us can imagine how bad it would be anyway. Yeah. Literally to then experience it, you know. So anyway, yeah, might be a thing. Because, you know, also your fantasies are the same. Your fantasies don't always turn out the way that you wanted them to be anyway. <laughs> Dreams and nightmares all in one go. So he, Anton, fails with, he's trying with Agatha to figure out his apparently, his act of violence, his murder, and he realises with Agatha there is no minority report. No. So for, for him, because that's what he's hoping, he's hoping, oh, I'm going to get the minority report of me to prove I wouldn't kill someone, and through Agatha he realises there is actually no... So, so with this, this then would be the turning point, you reckon? This is the midpoint? This where to we, me is the midpoint. Because it's a false victory. We think, oh, yeah. he's got Agatha, he's, he's won, he's going to now prove his innocence or prove there's like we're going to see a way for him to escape his fate. Mm. And it turns out we, we can't. But instead we're shown Anne Lively, yeah. the murder again. And he's like, why am I seeing this? But he downloads it uh, because Agatha wants him to see it. She grabs his hand and says, do you see? Do you see? Yeah. Uh, no, I don't. I don't. You're I don't. Cryptic. I just. I know. I just want to know who's this guy. I'm going to kill. Yes. And so that's what he does. Like I need. And that, that, there's this debate between Agatha and Anderton of, of, she's she's also saying to him, "We, you don't have to go there. You don't have to go." And, there. It, and it's a cool escape sequence where, <laughs> where she's telling him the future. Yeah. You know, wait for the man with the balloons. Man yeah. with the balloons. Then. Yeah, that's right. And he's saying that and. You know, you're going, how is this going to work? Because yeah. the, the cops are coming right up to look directly at him. Yeah. And just as they pull up and turn, the man with the balloon stands, he's completely hidden. <laughs> and then they will run off and the man with the balloon moves off. Mm. And you go, oh, that's pretty cool. And, and she's like, get an umbrella. And they yeah. go outside and it's raining. Mm. And, of course, the cops come outside and they can't, everyone's got umbrellas so you can't see them. And in his vision there's this third man. And so he comes sort of to the... I think it's after the rainy where they come up into this courtyard and he sees that there's a billboard being lifted up and mm. it's that third man, but the third man was on a billboard. Yes. And so he's like, oh, it's in this apartment somewhere, right? And yeah. he goes in there. There's an Aussie actor on the hotel room, hotel concierge in that room, in that hotel that he goes to. Um, and he finds out, he's like, oh, is there 
because the guy's name was Leo, wasn't it? Um, yeah, it was an L. Crow, Crow, Leo Crow, Crow, I think. And he's like, oh, you know, he's on this level. So he runs up there with Agatha. Agatha the whole time's going, you can turn around. You don't yeah. have to go in this you've, room. You've seen, your, you've seen your future. You can avoid it. You can avoid it. And mm. he, he's saying the whole time back, well, I'm not going to kill anyone. I don't even know who who is this guy. And, of course, burst into this apartment and on the bed he sees all these photos of kids. Mm. And so we as an audience, I think I think I was really rapid even the first time I watched it. So I'm yeah. like, oh, it's the guy that killed his kid. Yeah, I know. You, you get you know, that, like, oh, you, no. You straight away go. It's sort of almost a seven moment. If yeah. you've seen the movie Seven, yes. you get a similar sort of feeling at the end. Where you go, yeah. oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. We won't, well, I won't spoil that for you and, in case you haven't seen it. The great thing here is Cruz, you know, John is very much straight away like, Oh, I wasn't going to kill someone, but I think I am now. Yeah, but maybe. And he sees like, the photos and, of his and of Sean, he, yeah, and he's yeah, like, yeah. Uh, "Okay, who the hell is this, Leo?" And Leo walks in. Yeah, and he confronts him, and there's a whole fight, and there's some tears and yeah. stress. And he tells, he confesses that he killed his son. Yeah, and, and put him in a barrel, and the barrel floated or something. Yeah, and then he's yeah, Chongru's gonna yeah, John's gonna shoot him, and. Agatha keeps saying, no, you don't have to, and he pauses. Yeah. And he pauses just long enough that mm. Leah goes, oh, come on, you've got to do it or my family gets nothing. Yeah. And that, which is a dumb thing to say yeah. because suddenly John goes, you're, you're what now? Yeah, yeah. You know, and you can see him, his, his attitude changes. He goes, hang on, there's something very fishy going on here. Mm. And we get, we get the story that this isn't Leo. This is just some dude that got let out of prison and told that if he acted up and got shot, his family would win some prize, yeah. right? We don't know what this family's going to get, but obviously it was important to him. Mm. And so, but but with that, he can, grabs the gun and kind of forces him to be shot. Yeah, so it shoots himself. The same himself, as the basically. vision. Yeah, the yeah. same as the vision was. Or well, I don't, was it? No, I, I don't think it was. It was just moments because his alarm goes off. That's right. It was after, and he doesn't shoot. Yeah, that's and that's right. when there's the struggle afterwards. So yeah. he avoided the exact fate. Yeah, but as it turns out, more or less a similar fate occurs yeah, anyway. That's right. Yeah, it's just whether John was guilty or not. Is that's the only change really? Yeah. Meanwhile, Whitwer. That's right. Whitwer shows up at this murder scene of Crow, and. He, I like it. He goes, do you know what this is? He goes, I worked homicide for you know many years. And he goes, have you? And to the other guys, like to that other detective, do you have you? Do you know what this is on the bed? And he's like, what? He's like orgy of evidence. Yes, uh, that's a really good term, <laughs> isn't it? Orgy of evidence. And he goes, oh, what's that? And he's like, well, it's where all the evidence is kind of laid out in front of your eyeballs. Yeah. Do you know how many cases we get that on? And the guy's like, no. And he's like, none. Yeah, <laughs> and so he's like, "This is a setup." And so Whitworth, and don't there, you hate it in those movies where they the whole plot point is that the setup happens, and you, you're looking at it going, "That's an obvious setup." Yeah, like that is just but no too, one sort of sees it. It is too convenient that yeah. it's all there, and there's no one that asks the question of, "Well, why the heck does this guy have all of these photos out just as John comes in?" Yeah, Whitworth here. I think this is where his character, for us as an audience, turns really quickly because mm. he's just like, "This is a setup." Yeah. And so we know that he's then not necessarily the bad guy. He's trying to make it. He's just trying to find the truth. You know? Yes, he, he's he's an actual old school cop. Yeah, uh, he, he's admitted he comes from homicide. He and he he's, he's obviously then skeptical as to whether you can really have you pre, know pre crime yeah, yeah. homicide. 
And so John and Agatha head out to his wife. His wife also kind of gives away his location to Lamar as on the phone. Yeah. So so he kind of we know that John's been double crossed by his ex wife. But we do know that they've had this strained relationship from the oh, son. Danny got shot too. Oh, not yet. Yeah. He's uh yeah. It's when they Danny go gets out. shot first and then uh Laura calls Lamar and he's and she says, Don't tell Danny, I think I'm suspicious of him. He says, Oh, there's no chance. There's no oh, way about right. me telling yeah, him. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so and right. that's and that's one of those um Yeah, sorry, yeah. Is, is that like sort of as uh, a bit of a death going on there, which is because you're expecting you've got this character, Danny, going ahead, doing this, that and the other thing, and suddenly you go, oh, Danny's actually kind of on John's side Yes. Uh, in this. He doesn't believe he John is a killed. murderer. And then instantly he's killed. killed yeah. And as he's laying all this out and you go, oh, he's a good guy, you, that's when you also simultaneously realise he's laying it all out to the wrong person. Yes. He's telling yeah. the exact person he shouldn't be telling. That's right. And then yeah. there's a, have you told anyone else about this? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, why does everyone say that? He's just say, well, yes, actually. I've I, told everyone. I gave it to this reporter. He's going to be publishing it in the morning news. Yeah. In which case, like, well, there's not much point in shooting you then, is there? Yeah, yeah. And so John is with Agatha, they're explaining that through the visions, we see the vision more clearly that the mum was drowned by this, like, hooded man. Mm. Um, and we sort of, this is, it's weird because this vision has been shown to us earlier. And I think it's actually even in the opening sequence as a bit of it. Yeah. But we're sort of seeing it more clearer. And then in this bit, um, Agatha and John, they have a tender moment. Uh, and it's also his son is involved. You know, she, yeah, she sort of recounts she what recounts, his future would have yeah, been. Yeah, his future would have been, but then also not. And then she tells him to run and the cops all rock, rock up and he's arrested. He can't get away this time. No, we, we're, going to, we're going into Act 3 at this stage here where we're, we've got a real, a real down point here where everything seems to be lost, isn't he? He's, he's metaphorically sitting in, you know, by the side of the road with the rain in that he's got his halo on and he's chucked into a prison. And it's interesting here, I think, also in that this act is multiple participants as sort of the um, the protagonist role. So it's not all just John doing stuff. Now suddenly his wife is getting involved and that other funny blondie Goldilocks fellow is sort of helping out a bit. Yeah. Uh, you know, in delaying and so forth. But it's like it's like this is this is John gathering his resources, if yes, you will, so if we're so talking you... about that sort of st- stage in Act 3. Yeah, so it's, uh, to me when he was arrested that's right before Act 3. Mm. And he's locked up. Now, as an audience, it's like, oh, yeah, it's the Dark Knight of the Soul. Like, he's on the side of the... He's, he's out of the picture. And his wife, at that point in time, doesn't really trust John either. You know, no. he's been on drugs. He's kind of rocked up. He's accused of these pre-crime. She's not necessarily on John's side. Mm. And there's that scene she goes to Lamar. And talks with Lamar. And she talks with him. And it is, it's such a great, it's one of those, like, to me this is where Spielberg is at his best. Like, you kind of, the tension's there, one character, you cannot, you obviously know one character knows a piece of information that they're not going to reveal to the other character. And it's kind of like, how can they get tripped over? And Lamar, you know, he even gets her to, like, tie the tie. And whilst they're doing that, they're having this kind of weird tent, and she's realising oh, hang on, you're not telling me the truth. Yeah. And it's in that that, you know, 
And and we as an audience are like, well, we saw him shoot Whitwer earlier. Is yeah. he going to just shoot her to clean up the mess? And he doesn't. And then he's going off to celebrate pre-crime becoming national. Yes. So I think this is the thing. You're saying the protagonist is no longer John. It's because what you said is the inciting incident is the story, right? The story yeah. is actually should pre-crime become national? Yes. It's not really about John. It's actually that theme is the the point of the story, right? And so Laura learns that Lamar did have something to do with Lively's mum dying. Yeah. Because he mentions drowning when she had not mentioned yeah, that, it. And that's a classic and noir a trip up, isn't yeah, it? It's, it's, like, it's like, I never said the person's name. Yeah. I never said they drowned. I, yeah. never, you, I never said they drowned. Oh, ugh, you know. <clears throat> and at the same time, he's going off. He's representing the, the, the celebration of pre-crime becoming and he gets And we get this great present gifted yeah. to him yeah. and it's a gun. It's a gun. So you know that's coming out. That's right. It's coming out. That's, that's, you know, it's even signed by Chekhov himself. So to me it's like that you're, you, you, John's arrested pre-third act and then she, meaning Lamar, is right before third act as well but realising that truth yeah. is third act. You know what I mean? That's then, the crossover because then it's like what does she do with that information? And, and we talk about the, the gathering of resources yeah. for the plan. Yeah. That's where she goes down and she has the eyeball, yeah. the spare eyeball that yeah. John kept. <laughs> he didn't drop down the drain. No. And gets John out. That's John and, out. and we get a, a little bit of a comeuppance to that smarmy warden who's a little bit, you know, I don't Sleazy know. or gross. There's or something wrong with him anyway. Something a bit it's, off with him. <laughs> yeah, he deserves a little bit of punishment. Not he a does. lot, but just a little bit. Yeah. And then, yeah, and yeah, we sort of get yeah a real plan playing out uh, with a bit of cat and mouse, a bit of the, you know, talking on the phone and, you know, well, it's too late anyway and then he spots him. And we get the little reversal where I don't think John was expecting Lamar to have been given this gun as a gift. No. And so suddenly John finds have confronted Lamar's got a gun and then... And the precogs say there's murder. Yeah, murder on the roof, no, murder coming. Murder, death, kill. Yes, and, <laughs> and John, of course, he says, well, this is... He, he has that realisation. This is so the reversal. He's presented with his gun. He's like, oh, but, you know, he's, he's figured out what, as you said, what this whole point was about, about pre-crime going national. Yeah. And Lamar doing anything he can to cover up the dirty way that he got it all working. You know, yeah. like do the ends justify the means? And John's going, well, not really. Yeah. Because John's about justice and this is there's no justice in this. Mm. You can't just say, oh, sure, we stopped all these murders, but you did it in an unjust way. And, yeah, he, yeah, he, may, he gives that dilemma, which is if you shoot me, then that will prove, you know, uh, you know this pre-crime thing oh, has worked, but then you'll never, you know, it'll be canned because you'll go to prison. Yeah. So, you know, if you don't shoot me, it'll show that pre-crime isn't absolute mm. because you can, you know, it clearly if you told the person, like if they, they catch up with the person and say, hey, pre-crime, we know you're going to stab the person. They go, oh, oh, no, I'm not. And they chuck the scissors away. <laughs> yeah. You go, oh, well, we just stopped the crime. Yeah, we just stopped. You know, they, they had a choice as it turns out. Mm. So it's a very cool little dilemma that he gets stuck with. And, again, we get another classic noir thing here where they're pulling close and the gunshot goes off and the, the both the characters look a little bit sort of startled or whatever by it. Yeah. And, I mean, that's it's a bit of a cliche, in it, but it, it works so well so it's many times. Yeah. Uh, because... 
it still wasn't sure who would because it could easily have been John yep. who got shot. And then, you know, his wife cradles him and they make up yep. on the at the last moment where he goes, I'm really sorry. Proves that pre crime is yeah. not the way you can't solve all of it, you know. Yeah. Yes, but anyway. But he's shot himself. Lamar shoots himself and we get a uh you know, pre crime doesn't go ahead, yep. which is and then we, we get the this final image. What is this final image and how does it make you feel? Well, the, the, yeah, so we get told pre-crime's abolished. Yeah. The, the uh, last action hero set. Yes. <laughs> the sheriff's uh, police station is cleared out. No one's in it anymore. We get John with his wife again and she's pregnant. Yeah, that's so important. that's kind of I love revolving this. This is one of those beautiful story. shots where the camera's moving and we see John, he's in his apartment, it's raining, yeah. which is where it was last time. Yeah. And then it keeps pulling back and his wife's there and it pans a little bit further and she's pregnant. pregnant. Yeah. And so you go, okay, so... And he even rubs the belly, you know. Yeah, like, so, so yeah. you're going, okay, so he's... It's a bookend, you know. He yeah. was... At the start of the film, he was alone in his rainy apartment and he would take drugs. Hmm. And now he's with his wife. Oh, but they've they've sort of found peace yeah. with his son's loss and now they're going to replace him but, with a, a cheap and, knockoff. And maybe, yeah. <laughs> And then the precogs are now, you know, isolated in a nice home by the lake, and she's their hair's growing out a bit. So oh, a bit of time's gone and by. Doesn't and doesn't it look lots so and lots of books and cozy? Yeah. Doesn't it? Like it's like this yeah. this cozy, warm wooden cabin by the lake, and the you know, yeah. and they've got all these old books around them to read. You sort of look at that and go, oh, how many. How many sci-fi nerds watching this film will see that and go, "Oh, that's me. I that's want to lovely, do that." That's lovely, yeah. But meaning that then they're they're not drugged up in some cesspool. Yeah, they, they where get, they're being abused for their powers. They yeah. get it to have uh, a bit of peace. Yeah, yeah. It was nice, and then it uh, it roll credits, rolls credits, flows out. Yeah, so it's and, a great film. And of course, these last scenes were without that bright white filter and the graininess. You know, they, so did, they, were, yeah. they had a um, a more natural tone. Uh, it was did. a bit yeah. warmer feeling. Yeah, uh, it was yeah cleaner as well. So yeah, for sure. So well worth checking out for many reasons. Filmic wise, is awesome. Spielberg's on full display in many of the facets here. It's a Hollywood film, but it's a great Hollywood film and definitely worthy of being a classic for Space Brains. So we do have our sort of classic ladder where we've looked at the classics every fifth episode um, and just kind of putting them into, but sticking with maybe what would you watch Minority Report with, with the classics that we've looked at, sorry. I would would like to say, let me think about this one because I I liked The Matrix because it's sort of got a similar future sort of thing, but I also like Demolition Man. So I'm Mm. because The Matrix because it goes from yeah it goes to this real gritty reality through visions, and Demolition Man it is the frozen in ice and it pops out in that future. So I would definitely put it with those two. Mm. Murder Um, death kill. Murder death kill, (laughs) and and also. It it sort of breaks up some of the action. I mean, gee, what a what a rich trilogy to watch. That would there. be an amazing trilogy. Yeah, that's awesome. And for me, I'm I'm looking at it a little bit more thematic wise. So mm. I thought actually sticking it as a as a couple of films around it was we looked at Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Oh yeah. So I reckon that again, even though Minority Report's much more modern than Invasion of the Body Snatchers, there's that thematic version of that old school sci-fi story mm. and that 
the body snatchers, you know, if everyone's controlled by the aliens and how do you escape their spell, it's kind of also the same here, like society dictating, well, it doesn't matter if you're going to kill someone, it's just if you think about it, you're going to be arrested. Um, And then finally, and then I think the other one would be fifth element. So I think more that sort of, again, that futuristic world, that fifth element dictates and the themes that come out of that also kind of interplay with something like Minority Report. So mm. I think those kind of three in a row, that would be one hell of a sci-fi adventure. Oh, yeah, I, I think so. There's some of these there's three like, triple feature. That's, triple feature. that's, that's, right. <laughs> that's, that's what right. it's called. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that uh, it'd be great if other people would let us know what yeah, they think. Yeah, sure. What three classics uh, would... Would you think they should go together? What what two with minority or what to make three yeah. would go together? <laughs> uh, yeah. It's uh, you can yeah. We'll just go back through and have a look at every fifth episode. You'll know what all our classics are. That's right. And let us know. Hit us up on the socials and let us know what you're watching along the way. So, what about the science? Sorry, we're we talking about robotic spiders that scan eyeballs. Are we talking no, no. about computers that we can play with our gloves on, like Michael no, Jackson? We've, re- we've already got those. Oh, okay. This is, no, we're talking about pre-crime. Oh, pre-crime. Crime, uh, prediction, and prevention. But we know what turns out if you do pre-crime. Yeah, well, I mean... <laughs> it doesn't turn out well. It doesn't turn out well. And uh, interestingly <laughs> enough, there's a, I've got a, uh, there's a recently released paper about an artificial intelligence future predicting crime. Yeah. The author of that points out that this is not really for the purposes of catching people before the crimes happen. No, right. Like that's just not really good. But just preventing. Yes, yes. Modeling. We'll, we'll get to it because it, there's a, a rich history of crime research mm-hmm. to find out what it is. And there is a uh, an American government body called the National Institutes of Justice, right. much like the National Institutes of Health, uh, the NIJ. It gathers research and papers on topics of the justice system and criminology. I think the term right. is. Yeah. And so there's a. They have there a little brief history of crime prediction, crime modelling, uh-huh. if you like. Yeah. And we we start really start with actual sort of statistical analysis and scientific analysis of this thing back in 1829. So there's a fellow Adriano Balbi and Andre Michel Guerri, or Jury, or oh, I don't know how to pronounce that name. Jerry. So any of the French people Jerry, out there. Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. So they produced some maps which showed the relationship between education level and violent and property crime in France. And it's, it shows that, of course, low levels of education and increased poverty result in more crime. Mm-hmm. So we've known this since 1829. Yeah. What I find interesting is I've, I've read through much of I me mean, some of these other articles and they're going, oh, we can do all sorts of things to try and prevent crime. And I said, like, but we've known for like 200 years <laughs> that the way you prevent it is by providing education and getting people out of poverty, uh-huh. like not getting more police. Mm. Police are handy. They're good. We need them to, to enforce yeah, laws. We still need them. But if you want to reduce crime, you don't reduce crime by having more police. You reduce crime by not... Having mm. the crime in the first place, but so anyway, what? free education, good quality education. Anyway, so let's just ignore science and statistics <laughs> and rationality here, and we'll just move on into the early twentieth century, shall we? Yes. Where we have uh, Clifford Shaw and Henry Mackay. So they oh, mapped Clifford Shaw. They mapped thousands of incidents of juvenile delinquency, and they analysed the relationship between delinquency and various social conditions, mm. finding that. 
people who were poor and with poor education and with broken homes tended to be more delinquent. Mm. Not terribly surprising, I suppose, but they were able to find the the um, levels of cor- correlation, mm. which is quite important. So in the 50s, Jane Jacobs uh, moved forward to examine the built environment mm-hmm. uh, and how that worked with crime. Uh-huh. And her work led to later research which posited the crime has spatial patterns uh-huh. and thus it should be able to be forecast. Mm. So this is important because if you just go on, um, it's people with low education and are poor. You go, well, that's great, but how do we identify? We just do a census and identify poor people with low education and there's going to be crime near them or is it like they're going to commit crime? Mm-hmm. Well, so the, that's not terribly helpful really. Yeah, yeah. You need to be able to go, well, um, how then can we determine levels of crime? We're talking about crime here is a, as a, you know, a generalized thing, a population thing, not specific individuals committing yeah, crimes. Yeah. Yeah. Because how do you forecast that Mark is going to commit crime X at this date. You, you, yeah. you basically sort of can't really, but you can sort of say this area is high in crime in general. Mind you, you know, when you're a known offender, sometimes they do trail known offenders. Yeah. So like the Claremont serial killer, for, ex- for example, you know, for a few years there, they literally followed a couple of high known suspects. Mm-hmm. Which turned out to not be the actual Claremont well, serial killer. This is one of the problems, so of course. The thing, when you it? do that, it borders you, you border on things like harassment, which yeah. is almost almost entrapment. Like if you, yeah, you follow yeah. someone who's like, say, they've come out of prison yeah. and maybe they're they're struggling to integrate and to go straight, and if they constantly got cops pressuring them, mm. even just by knowing they're there, like the cop, the police don't even have to talk to them. No. But if if every time they look around, there's sort of police hanging around, or they get the feeling that like. You, you're almost Probably pushing them to, to... To make another mistake. Yeah. To be impulsive, you know. Yeah. Anyway, so in the 70s, criminal criminologists they started having a look at the importance of place because they're going, this is something we can deal with. We can't... Yeah. Individuals, they've got free will. They can make decisions. Things, they come and go. Uh-huh. But places, maybe there's something about place. And so Lawrence Cohen, no relation of the author here, and Mark, actually, I don't know that. Ooh. No, but <laughs> I would say not. And Marcus Felsen. <clears throat> they came up with this thing called routine activities theory. Mm. Rat. Yeah, I know, right? Rat. <laughs> Another rat. So routine activities affect crime is what they're saying. Mm. So for a crime to occur, they said that three things must coincide at the same place and time. A right. person motivated to commit a crime, a suitable target, and a lack of capable guardianship. And due to the consistency in humans' routines, mm. uh, they argued that we should be able to forecast crime because, yeah, people, they go to work. <clears throat> they go to work in the morning. Mm. They have a coffee break. They go have lunch. They visit the gym. Mm. They, you know, visit their friends on the weekends. You know, these things are things that we repeat over and over again. Yeah. So you can almost take that out of the equation and then just look at the areas where the crimes are happening mm. because the areas will be the where the same people go to all the same time. Mm. Yeah, so anyway, then we had this uh, another bunch then who put forward. So that's the other bunch being Paul and Patricia Branging, Brantingham. Gosh, let's just, I'm going to change your name, Paul and Pat. First of all, it's Paul and Pat, and your last <laughs> name is Branty. There you go. Uh, they, 
Sorry's decided. That's that's it. That's that's um yeah, you've just been renamed. So they put forward the environment criminology theory. So they are saying that there are four things intersecting on time. Mm. So a law, because obviously you need a law, a person motivated to commit a crime, a target and a place. And so the place is a distinct location where the other three intersect uh-huh. so that you can graph these things. Right. And then uh, we, we have crimes may spatially cluster because either criminal has already spent time and energy stalking a neighbourhood, of course, mm-hmm. uh, or they've or the learned behaviour may result in what they call a peripatetic cycle. I had to look that one up because I'm going, what the hell is a peripatetic? Mm. But that's just a peripatetic cycle is just things you commonly do. You Sounds always like go to the gym. Source. You go to the gym <laughs> after work right. and then you catch the number three Your bus home, yeah. you know, and so you, you have this habitual locations you are at the same set of times. Yeah. And so if you get these, you know, everyone has a slightly different cycle and so you get like, you know, the person who's motivated to commit the crime happens to cycle through at the same time as a person who is a victim at the same time that the police aren't nearby mm, and now right. you get the opportunity for a crime. Right. So, yeah, so if you can if you can look at these places and these cycles, you should be able to predict a bit of crime. Mm. So the spatial distribution of crime. And so that, you know, we fast forward into the 90s, you've got this CompStat idea uh, where they're trying to reduce crime. It was made famous by the um, Chief Bill Bratton while in New York City Department. And so the difference is CompStat was a, a methodology for preventing and reducing crime, which mm. was data-driven. Right. So this isn't just a... Um, hey, you guys, it's your turn to do this section, it's your turn to do that. They were actually gathering this data about place, about, you know, cycles and uh, crime hotspots and so forth yeah. and sending police there to, to try and solve problems associated with crime. Yep. And we finally have Lawrence Sherman, Patrick Garten and Michael Berger. So they examined 323,979 exactly calls to Minneapolis Police Department uh, during 85, from 85 through 86, I should say. Uh, wow. And they found 50% of all calls originated from only 3% of all possible locations. Mm. And they also found a greater concentration of crime around micro places than more around micro places than around individu- individuals. Mm. So Fred Smith might well commit uh, an assault, but that might be the only assault he commits his entire life. Same with, you know, Jane McCluggins. She robs a shop. It might be the only crime she commits her whole life. So really that's only one crime out of a whole lifetime. That's not much. Mm. But it turns out they're both within, you know, 50 metres of each other mm. and within a week of each other. Right. And so you go, oh, there's, there's actually something about that place is meaning that crime can happen. Yeah. It's encouraging the crime. Yeah, and, and then this, this led to questions such as why aren't we thinking more about where done it rather than just who done it? Mm. These results marked the beginning of hotspots policing. Now, hotspots policing, uh, I'm sure you can imagine what that means. Yes. It literally means that they go, they well, this hot, street they had on a particular spot. Yeah, so this, this little suburb had a lot of crime. You know, like this is Coodenup uh, has a lot of crime mm. so we will put a lot of police there mm. and yeah you catch a lot of people but you know that's is that just because you put a lot of police there or because there's actually a lot of crime there mm. hard to tell so anyway that's just a little and bit then of, you also neglect the other areas yeah, you neglect <laughs> the other areas and and we have this now this ai system which was you know created 
Uh, it was by Ishanu Chattopadhyay. You're renamed now. You're John Anderton. Uh, Ishanu is a PhD and is the assistant professor of medicine at University of Chicago, senior author of the new study, which was published June 30, 2022, in the journal Nature Human Behavior. Right. So he came up with an AI used to predict crime accurately in eight cities in the US. Mm. It also revealed an increased police response in wealthy neighborhoods at the expense of less advantaged areas. Mm. Yes, because hotspot policing. They'd say this is high value crimes, mm. so we will have a high value response here. Mm. But really, uh, early efforts at crime uh, prediction have been controversial because they do not account for systemic biases in police enforcement, i.e., they tend to prefer to be in the wealthy areas because the crimes there are easier to fix, basically, mm. uh, and it's complex relationship with crime society. So it's, it's interesting because they basically got a whole bunch of violent and property crimes fed it into this AI, and I've spoken about AI enough now, and then they said, okay, start giving us predictions of where violent and property crimes will occur. And they did this by dividing the cities, not by suburb or borough or any of those sorts of things, but just into equally sized 300 by 300 meter squares. Mm. And they said this was interesting because previously people had done by suburb mm. and you know postcode, as, as you may have heard that the, the certain postcodes in Perth are the meth capital of yeah. Australia. Congratulations, Perth. We're number <laughs> one. The problem with that, of course, is crimes don't really respect these geographic boundaries. No. And by saying, you know, I say like Coonapa Greenfields is a high crime spot area, it's sort of unfair because there's plenty of places in both of those places that are not high crime. Yeah. You know, like you go one street over and they're perfectly fine. And also like you might have murder, death, kill in another suburb, mm. but Greenfields you have a lot of robberies. Yes. But then it's not to say the robberies aren't, Bad, like bad things for people to experience, but over here you had a murder. Yeah, like which one is actually worse? So, you know? so they they broke it up in this three hundred by three meter grid, regardless mm. of uh, political boundaries or postcodes or any of that mm. sort of stuff. Yeah, so right. So that they could they could generally see whereabouts physically it was places were located. Uh huh. And they they also took into account topology of the city. So this is an important idea that you can't just draw a dot and go. This is sort of statistically the centre point of the most number of crimes and then so that's a hot spot because that hot spot centre point might be in the middle of a building or something. Yeah. And you can't then just draw out a radius because it could be on a train line. Yeah. You know, and it's actually the train line itself is causing that these crimes to be able to occur because as you know, these cycles people have. They get on a train at one spot, they get off at another spot and this other spot doesn't have good guard system. You know, there's not yeah. great video cameras there. And just down the road from there is a drug dealer. Yeah. And so there's people that tend to get off that train station and on mug a couple of people on the way to go buy their pot. Yeah. Well, not pot anymore because in America that's, you know, a lot of that's quite legal. And I think that if you really want to get pot in America, you just go on the legal states and smoke to your heart's content. I don't Fair really enough. know what the laws are over there regarding that, but yeah. there you go. So anyway, the spatial models uh, ignore natural topology of the city. Transport, uh, transportation networks uh, respect streets, walkways, train and bus lines. Communication networks respect areas of similar socioeconomic background. And this model enables discovery of these connections mm -hmm. because you have these small spots that, uh, you know, you can trace 
to a much finer granularity. And um, so the question is, why do you do it? So not for pre-crime. So it, it predicts with 90%, it would say this 300 by 300 meter spot is going to have, you know, next week is going to have two violent crimes. Mm. And you go, oh, well, that's pretty exciting. But the model takes into account <laughs> movement of people, transport, communication networks, and also law enforcement. Mm. So they're saying this model is more to be used as a digital twin so what you would say is you set this area up and say, okay, then what happens if we change the cha- the train schedule? Mm. Because this is an interesting thing. It's like, okay, what if the trains were five minutes difference instead of every 15 minutes or every 10 minutes? Yeah. You know, how, how would that affect this prediction model? Because uh, that shifts where the crimes occur because people, maybe by shifting about five minutes like that, people going to and from work are shifted spatially from the people who are going to their drug dealer. And so you no longer get that crossover uh-huh. of people not paying attention while rushing to work and the guy looking for some easy cash. Yeah, right. Or alternatively, maybe by having it more frequent, that guy doesn't go to a drug dealer. He actually makes it on time to his job interview. Mm. You know, you can't predict these things very well. And, yeah. and also you might say, say, well, what if we put police patrols in this ratio or we move here and we go, oh, this area here is low socioeconomic. What if we introduce a uh, some... Space Brains filmmaking workshops there so that people can, you know, make films and not war. Mm. You know, that's the idea of this, this yeah, yeah. thing. You're not going to be able to, uh, you know, rush police there and catch the crimes in place because even the act of doing that will change where those crimes will occur. This allows you to find out good ways of, of spreading your resources. Basically. Yeah, well, any, any, what you do with that data then, isn't it? So those data points are entered and what you can do with it. And hopefully prevent, all you can do is prevent it, but because even all that stuff you were saying, whatever the modeling actually means in my brain, I'm like, if you can't, you can't predict, like, like, uh, Whitworth says, you can't predict when you put a human in the room. Yeah. And that's, and that's the thing, like a serial killer, for example, you can't necessarily predict what he's going to do. No, because you're getting, you're getting too specific. You can, you can talk about trends and population style. Mm probabilities where you can sort of say if we change the train schedule if we do the police thing if we put in introduce you know social events cultural things here we would expect a reduction in crimes in this area you're not saying that you're curing individual criminals no as it were but you're sort of saying that this is going to be that and so the idea is we'd be able to try and do that largely enough because people don't generally speaking people don't walk around just wanting to do crime no like it's often the case that they they find themselves in a in a a moment where impulse overtakes them or they they're desperate and down yeah. or yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it, I'm I'm hoping that sort of thing means then that people do things like, well, let's have more. Yeah, you know, we know it's here after school gets out, there are fights. You know, yeah, there's more violent crime here. We don't know it's the kids. It could be any number of things. But how about what we do is we build a skate park there mm. and have competitions. Yeah. And now suddenly this is now, that changes the way people interact with that space. It changes, it could just push, make crime occur someone else or it could mean that the people who would normally have found themselves desperate or in a hard spot have some other outlet for their impulse. That's and, correct, you know, yeah. dropping into a 12-foot bowl is, is a fair bit of thrill for anyone. Yeah, because, it, I mean, the thing is you can take that data and you can prevent, so you could say, like you said, 
change the train schedule. You could maybe mm. improve the lighting. You could add more guards or police a station there or you revamp the train station. You know mm. what I mean? Like you, you could do things to prevent. And we get a lot of that here when they think, oh, we're putting CCTV in, we're adding lighting, we're changing the pathway, whatever, right? Like so you do that, that's prevention. That's to help prevent it. But then the crime would probably just move a block over where it's dark or yeah. or to the other train station, you know what I mean? Because even if you beautify one suburb, there'll always be another suburb that's not as beautiful and cheaper to live in and, you know, statistically you'll probably end up with more drugs or whatever in that area. So there's prevention, but then those other ideas are actually ways to be more proactive. So, yeah, let's run a film festival. Let's run a skate clinic. Let's build something for the kids to do. Let's go back to your original statistics. Oh, here's an idea. Why don't we educate them, you know, yeah. like run adult youth classes for free, mm. you know what I mean? Like train up the gangs so that they're actually looking after their neighbourhood and they're not a, you know, they're not <laughs> against the police. Yeah, you can imagine that beginning. Hey, you know what's even cooler than being <laughs> in a gang, kids? Picking up litter. That's right. <laughs> well, you get someone like Tom Cruise yeah. to sell it, you know. <laughs> oh, that'd be intense, wouldn't it? Yeah, that's right. He'd, he'd, he'd do his, you know, really intense stare. His Eyeball. little jaw muscle would move a little bit. You go, pick up the litter. Pick up the litter now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. So, anyway, that sounds awesome. So what do you think about pre-crime? Is it possible? You know, Surrey's outlined some uh, data points there and I presume that in the future it's going to be more and more data. So oh, absolutely. Why that's not? That's really the future is data. I mean, you could start tracking everyone's phones and, you know, all sorts of things and get get that raw data, can't you? Um, so it'd be interesting where that does head. I'm sure a lot of police, if you're a police officer, you might be someone that's like pre-crime is the way to go. Yeah, I don't know. Like you know, just prevent the murder. Why? What? What is wrong with preventing the murder before it happens? No, you know? I, like, I definitely but, you should. So, I, think, I think the question all just comes down to what you do afterwards. What do you do afterwards with that? Do, you, yeah. do they get a warning and then they're sort of watched after that, I, or I, they have I, to go get training? I think they need violent? a bit of a helping hand. Really, I don't know. You know, you're not killing people. Well, some people do kill for the fun <laughs> of it. If it looks like that's what they're doing, then maybe they should be. They need to be put yeah. removed from society. Anyway, let us know what you think about that. So that is the end of episode 85. That's our classic. Hit us up on all of our socials. If you're listening to us on Apple or Spotify or wherever, give us a five-star rating or chuck us a review. It always helps enable more people to find Space Brains. And keep an eye out on us on YouTube. We've got a few things out. We've got got some stuff from the uh, film festival. Mm -hmm. And there's more to come. Coming shortly, there will be some more of us. Yeah, hey, be. hey, what are we doing next episode? This one is super exciting. <laughs> this is the one that you need to tune into. We have local West Australian feature filmmaker extraordinaire Ben Young. Ben Young. So the whole episode is dedicated to Ben. And you'll remember he was the director of Extinction. Extinction. I nearly said Extradition, but that's not the right one. Extinction, <laughs> which we yeah. did... Was that the two episodes ago? Yeah, episode 83, um, yes. pretty sure. And, yeah, we, we got him on the show. We had a great interview with him, a uh, full hour-long chat about the intricacies of 
filmmaking, extinction. Oh, yeah, he gave some know. great insight there on, yeah. on say, the differences between directing, because he's directed TV shows as well as feature films. Mm-hmm. He goes a bit uh-huh. about some of the interesting differences there. He talks a bit about um, the interesting difference between working Hollywood compared to independent yeah. and, you know, how to um, capture some ideas and, you know, there's some really good, valuable stuff in there. I, I thought it was extremely enlightening. Yeah, it was a great chat, and you've got to tune into that one. So let us know on socials what you think. Give us suggestions of films, and yeah, give us a review, or, or let us know where we should be, what we should be looking at on Space Brains. Thanks for listening. See ya. Bye. Bye.